This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and it's true, we have listeners all over the country, all over the world, in fact, but in our heart of hearts, this is still a New York radio program. Sure, you can hear us in 38 states on one of the most powerful radio signals in America, but this, uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker, I grew up here, and I care a great deal about the future of this state, and right now, we are in the midst of a very heated election for governor, And what happens in New York, including the governor's race, has ramifications around the whole country. And to some extent, it has ramifications around the whole world. And I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. So we've been continuing to follow and look at everything that's been happening in the race for governor. Now, as it stands now, today is Tuesday, June 24th. Excuse me, Tuesday, June 21st. The final day of voting is June 28th. I'm not even really going to call it primary day or election day because primary voting started on Saturday. So far, though, the uh, turnout has been anemic. Both Democrat and Republican have an opportunity to vote in the race for governor in their party's primary. And look, who knows what's going to happen? I'm not a big believer in the polls, but it, it does appear that Kathy Hochul has a pretty big lead in the Democratic primary for governor. And then it seems like the Republican primary for governor is a bit more competitive. You see certain polls that show Zeldin leading. You see certain polls that show Giuliani leading. You see other polls that have uh, Wilson being somewhat competitive. So it, it really is interesting, and I think this is anybody's race. I really do, and you may disagree, you, but I think this Republican contest is r- wide open Some folks say that because this is such a Democratic state, maybe it doesn't matter who the Republican uh, nominee is. I still think in the current climate, when there does seem to be a little bit of momentum on the Republican side of the ledger, I think the general election might be a bit more competitive than a lot of the armchair pundits think it might be. So uh, I want to take a look at what happened in last night's debate for governor Uh, that happened on Spectrum News, New York One. I just finished watching it. They just did a replay of it. And I'll tell you what's so annoying. I went on to New York One's website because we had some guests over yesterday and I wasn't able to watch the whole thing live at 7 p.m. So thankfully they just replayed it and I just finished watching it in the kitchen. But what's so annoying is New York One says at the end of the debate, we're going to have the whole debate available in the Spectrum News app. Now, So I downloaded the Spectrum News app just so I can go back and watch some aspects of it that I wanted to see again, I don't see it anywhere. And I'm a subscriber. I, I have Spectrum cable just so I can get New York One. And I went back. I don't see it anywhere on the website. So apparently, maybe it'll be up there tomorrow. Maybe they wanted people to see the replay. But apparently, they think you don't need to see the full debate and that the two-minute highlight reel that they have on their website is sufficient. That's really bogus, and I'm hoping they will upload the whole thing. Now, the final debate, 
is going to be tonight in Rochester. Uh, that's the Newsmax TV debate. That debate's going to be a little different for two reasons, really three reasons. One, unlike the Channel 2 debate last week and the New York 1 debate yesterday, this debate is going to have all four candidates there in person. Both New York 1 and Channel 2 would not allow Andrew Giuliani to participate in person because he's not vaccinated. Now, this is just absurd because Andrew Giuliani, as I explained yesterday, appeared in studio on New York 1 on Pat Kiernan's show in April. And they had no problem with him being in studio then. All of a sudden, now this is a problem. That's number one. It's also going to be a bit different because it's on a conservative network and I think the main moderator, Eric Bowling, is right-leaning. Now, the New York 1 debate and the Channel 2 debate, they did sort of gear the – they geared the questions to, to a general election audience and maybe even a left-of-center audience rather than the kind of issues that red meat-eating, right-wing conservative Republicans, who, let's face it, those are the folks most likely to vote in the primary election – rather than focus on the kind of issues that they would want to hear about. So we heard a lot about um, the 2020 election. We heard a lot about January 6th. We heard a lot about June 6th, uh, about uh, Juneteenth, but not necessarily about a lot of the nuts and bolts issues that a lot of conservatives would be most interested in hearing their candidates opine about. The other reason it's different is because Newsmax, unlike Channel 2 and New York 1, is a national network. Now, they don't have the kind of reach that a Fox News channel does or a MSNBC or CNBC, but they are absolutely a national network. And it's a network that Donald Trump watches. It does seem like both Zeldin and Giuliani are trying to make a push for Donald Trump's endorsement. Andrew Giuliani had a fundraiser last week at uh, Donald Trump's golf course in New Jersey. Uh, Steve Bannon was there. Bernard Carrick was there. Rudy Giuliani was there. And... Surprise guest of honor, Donald Trump was there. Now, he didn't say, I endorse Andrew Giuliani, but I think his his presence really says a lot. But he is yet to endorse in this race. And I, if I were betting, I would bet that he stays out of it because Zeldin was a pretty dogged supporter of Donald Trump in Congress, voted against impeach, impeachment, voted not to count the 2020 electoral uh, results, and uh, has taken a lot of incoming on behalf of President Trump. And obviously, you know the history that he has, Donald Trump has with the Giuliani. So the, the I watched this debate very closely. And if you want to comment on this, I'd love to hear your analysis of the debate. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. I have to say, I watched and listened to all candidate, all four candidates pretty closely. They're pretty close on the issues. They all emphasized crime. They all emphasized taxes and cost of living. There are very few red line differences between all four of these candidates. Most of the differences happen to be stylistic and have to do with things like character. And once again, I must say, and I like Lee Zeldin and I respect Lee Zeldin, but I thought Lee Zeldin came across this in this debate just looking... Very small. I mean, the way that he attacks Andrew Giuliani. Oh, I know you're you you think you're entitled. You think you're entitled. He just came across looking like I I hate to put it this way, but like a sniveling little jerk. And then his whining about Harry Wilson's negative campaign ads. He doesn't come across looking like a statesman. 
I mean, if I were Lee Zeldin, and it's true, Harry Wilson is running in a lot of negative ads against Lee Zeldin. But if I were Lee Zeldin, what my attitude is was, Harry, this is what I would say if I were Zeldin. Harry, you're not a serious candidate. Uh, Nobody thinks you have a serious chance of winning this nomination, let alone the election. And I'm not going to dignify your dishonest attacks with a response. That's it. But instead, this is how Lee Zeldin carries on with this whining about Harry Wilson. Yeah, uh, questions for Wilson. His ads have been lying on all sorts of fronts, but uh, I'll direct my question to the most recent one that's on TV uh, at the moment. Uh, It's unfortunate that he's dishonestly claiming that had voted to defund the police as a member of Congress, even though that 1,000 percent that absolutely didn't happen. Now, uh, Harry Wilson is airing these ads on TV and radio and mail. And the truth is, is that the real source of that particular charge wasn't that there was some vote on a $2.9 million earmark to the NYPD. True or false, Harry Wilson? True or false? What I actually voted on was against Nancy Pelosi's $1.5 trillion, 2,700-page massive spending bill that was released hours before the vote, and no member of Congress had the opportunity to read it. True or false, that is the vote that I voted against. The Pelosi's one and a half trillion. This is the longest question I've ever heard. One and a half trillion But you get the gist of it. Go ahead. True or false. You can respond. I got it about 45 minutes ago. True or false. But the answer is it's falsely, and here's why. Because the New York Post reported that you voted against this. I'm fact-checking you on that one. And every New York Republican voted differently. So I guess you're going to try to argue that good conservatives like Elise Stefanik and Claudia Tenney were, were wrong and were you you just kind of voting to the different. voters. No, that's 100% accurate. But he's lying he's not, to the voters. He's saying that because everything in our ads is footnoted and documented. Just, we we, we would fact check it, but you got to let him in. footnoted and documented, every single charge. This is from a New York Post article that showed that Mr. Zeldin was the only New York Republican to vote against it. It's that simple. So Mr. Zeldin stands up here and says we're lying, just like he's saying now he can't defend his record because his record is so bad. He lied about that 2011 op-ed. We're happy to show it to anybody. It basically says, no, the Senate Republicans need to do more because this is the moment of truth to either get New York State on a better trajectory and fix it or let us wallow in despair. And he failed to lead for four years in the Senate. That is fundamentally what I wrote in that op-ed. I was right then and I'm right now because he failed to lead. And Thank that's you. the difference between Lee Zeldin and Thank all of you. us up here who are fighting to, to change the state on. rather than I'm watching these candidates carry on and bicker about about silliness. And all I'm thinking is, if you're a Republican in New York state that actually wants to make a serious push for the governor's mansion, do you watch this and just shake your head with your hand with your hands covering your face saying, I can't believe what I'm watching? Now, uh, Rob Astorino, the former Westchester County executive and a fellow that ran for governor back in 2014, he took issue with some of the things that uh, Lee Zeldin has said previously in support of Andrew Cuomo. So you had said when you were in the Senate majority, and you were very proud to say this, that under Cuomo, the age of dysfunction in Albany was over. And so that's one of the reasons why you did vote for the Cuomo budgets. You see, the ex- executive actually does submit the budget. I did it in Westchester. And, um, and they vote on that. You know how it works in the state Senate and in the legislature. So you said that the age of dysfunction was over when we had corruption rampant. Shelley Silver, Dean Skelos, unfortunately, many others. And the University of Albany, uh, Illinois, said that New York was the most corrupt state in America at the time when you said it was 
over with. So do you stand by that, saying that the age of dysfunction that you were part of never really happened? You know, it's funny how you dig up comments from 2011, just how Rob Astorino made comments when he was welcoming Andrew Cuomo to a property tax bill signing, praising Andrew Cuomo's fiscal policy and standing with him at that announcement. Or it was January of 2011 when Harry Wilson wrote an op-ed into the Daily News where he was praising uh, Andrew Cuomo's fiscal pro uh, reforms and calling on all the legislators nope. to nope. pass it. The reality was in 2011, what we did get done was we passed the nation's strongest property tax cap. We reduced middle income tax rates to the lowest level in 60 years. We repealed the MTA payroll tax for 80% of employers. We got rid of the saltwater fishing license fee. And closest to my heart is that we enacted the PFC Joseph Dwyer Veteran and Peer Support Program that I proposed for our veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. Now, in, in Congress right now, Georgetown University, out of 435 members of Congress, ranks me as the 19th most bipartisan member of Congress. And you know what? I can stand up for what I believe in. I can engage on issues that might be controversial. I stick to my principles, but at the end of the day, we have a job to try to find common ground however possible. And I don't care if it's a President Obama, a President Trump, a okay. President Biden, a Governor Cuomo. We have a responsibility to Thank work you. together, and we got good things done in 2011. I, no, I actually think Zeldin handled that pretty well. I, I don't think you should be afraid to work with someone because they happen to be in a different party. Look, Andrew Cuomo was the governor at the time. What is he supposed to, what is he supposed to do? Just not work with the governor? Of course you got to work with the governor. 800-848-WABC. I'm curious also, do you think these debates make a difference? If you're a registered Republican, whether you voted or not, are these debates influencing your vote or are, have you made your decision and you're sticking with whomever you've decided that you like for whatever reason? And if you are a Republican, who do you think the strongest candidate is against Kathy Hochul, assuming she's the nominee? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love to see Tom Swazi pull out a victory there, but I think that's unlikely. 800-848-WABC. Obviously, they spent a lot of time talking about an issue that we covered yesterday on this show the issue of COVID vaccines for children. Obviously, today is the first day that children between the age of six months and five years old are eligible for these COVID vaccinations. And so they were asked about it. Here was Rob Astorino. That's a parental choice that needs to be made by a mom and a dad or a guardian. That should not be required by the state of New York. I have protested the Dinowitz bill that would require kids to get a COVID vaccination in order to attend school, which is absurd because by state constitution, all kids have to get an education in New York. All of these things like a quarantine bill that if the health commissioner or governor thinks you might have a disease, like COVID or others, they can come after you and actually quarantine you. That's a bill right now in Albany and the Senate. This is how crazy it has gotten. No, I'm not for mandates. I'm in favor of parental rights. I'm in favor of medical freedom. That's really what this is all about. We're living in just a nonsensical universe right now with COVID, with with requiring masking and showing proof to get into buildings. We're no longer in a pandemic. We've got to stop acting like we are. And Kathy Hochul has to drop her mandates. I will, as I said, on day one. But that's the only way we're going to get back off of our knees as a state economically and, and back to normal. 
Harry Wilson on the same subject. So first, I do not believe it should be added to the list of required vaccinations. I think it's an incredible testament to American ingenuity that we were able to, to develop vaccines as quickly as we were through Operation Warp Speed and the power of the American private sector. But that creates opportunities, not mandates. And the opportunity to get vaccinated, I've, I'm personally vaccinated, boosted. I encourage people to do so. But that is their choice and should not be required by the government, particularly for young children. And, and to, to the extent that um, schools do have re- required vaccinations, do you think this is fundamentally different from, say, smallpox, measles, rubella, and so forth? I do, because I think we, for a number of reasons, both on the, the medical science underlying those and the contagiousness of those relative to COVID-19, as well as the endemic nature of where we are now in COVID-19. Uh, and I also think that the, the, the development process, which has been incredibly rapid, we should all be grateful for that, should play itself out much longer uh, before making any assessments. And so, but the punchline is, I think it's a fundamentally different disease, and that's why I think it should be treated differently than existing vaccination requirements. Lee Zeldin on the same subject. Leave it up to the parents. I believe in the fundamental right of a parent to control the upbringing of their child, uh, that the government should not infringe upon that right at all. If you want to get the shot, get the shot. If you don't want to get the shot, don't get the shot. But don't get it because Kathy Hochul called on you to be her apostle. Yeah, Kathy Hochul, the same Kathy Hochul who said that she was the mother of all 62 counties at a recent speech that she gave in front of the New York State Association of Counties. I believe that the religious exemption shouldn't have been eliminated. I support bringing that back. I don't believe that the governor should be able to unilaterally extend her emergency powers as she just did once again. That's wrong. She didn't even seek legislative approval. Uh, the health department shouldn't be doing this end around the legislature enacting these new policies. There should be a debate of vetting a vote inside of the state legislature. I believe that these mandates that are coming down with the heavy hand of government, whether it's a vaccine passport, it's a vaccine mandate, it's some of those ridiculous mask mandates on toddlers, on all these different fronts, government needs to do a much better job getting out of the way and respecting individual liberty and personal freedom. So it's interesting. One of the things that we're seeing in the early voting so far is that the turnout is very, very low. Now, the turnout's always lower in the early voting than it is on day of voting. But usually, if it's heavier than expected early voting turnout, then it's usually a heavy turnout on the day of voting itself. In the presidential election, for instance, in 2020, there was a lot of heavy voting in terms of, uh, you know, early voting turnout. And then we saw the same thing on primary day. I'm wondering if the fact that so far the early voting turnout is so little if that means the voting on Election Day is also going to be very little. And I don't know who that helps. Uh, does that help the establishment candidate, Lee Zeldin? Does it help the uh, candidate that might have the most name recognition, Andrew Giuliani? Does it help the candidate with the most money, Harry Wilson? I don't know. Or does it help the candidate that's been the nominee before, Rob Astorino? So I was wondering, I was talking about this with Curtis yesterday off air, and he said he thinks the low turnout helps Giuliani. I don't know if that's the case. I'd be curious what you think. 800-848-WABC. Lee Zeldin uh, continued on the vaccines. Okay, so here again, Mr. Zeldin, I'm trying to find sort of the limiting principle. If each, if each family said, hey, I, I want to do smallpox, I want to do tuberculosis, or I don't want to do measles, I don't want to do COVID, at some point you, you stop having a policy, right? Well, the definition of vaccine has changed. I used to remember that if you get a vaccine... That means that you have immunity to what they're giving you that shot for. But all of a sudden, suddenly with the COVID vaccine, the definition changes because even if you get it, you can still contract 
COVID. Uh, so what we're seeing with these moving goalposts, I, I have a problem with the recalibration of moral compasses of those who are in government. I remember when Andrew Cuomo and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, around the fall of 2020, they were sowing doubt inside of the COVID vaccine. Then suddenly around December of 2020, they decided to get the shot themselves. That's okay. Joe Biden said that he wasn't going to mandate it. Then he decided he was going to mandate it. And the worst part that's most insulting is, and it's from issue to issue, is when these elected officials insist that you recalibrate your moral compass to meet theirs as you have these shifting goalposts. And Kathy Hochul knows what I'm talking about as she evolves on position after position after position because she's in over her head and she needs to go on November 8th. Am I the only one that is, thinks that Lee Zeldin always sounds like he's whining? I mean, to me, he just got, has this perpetual whine to him. 800-848-WABC. Let me hear um, Andrew Giuliani on the same subject, and then uh, we'll get to those of you that are holding. There are a few open lines if you want to comment. If you saw the debate, if you didn't watch it, if you've made a decision about who you're voting for, if you're undecided, and if you are undecided what the factors are in helping you make a decision, 800-848-WABC. And my broader question is, one, do these debates matter? Two, if it does turn out to be a low turnout primary, who's helped by that? Is it advantage Zeldin, advantage Giuliani, advantage Estorino, advantage Wilson? I don't know. Uh, This is Andrew Giuliani on the COVID vaccines. And Andrew, again, was not able to participate in person because he himself has not been vaccinated. Well, as you can imagine, the answer to the second question, which is whether this should be mandated for toddlers or for anybody at this point, Errol, the answer is absolutely not. Clearly, no. In terms of whether I would recommend this, I want to be very clear. I am not a biologist, uh, nor am I an epidemiologist. But I can tell you, with all the studies that I've read through this, I would want to see far more data than I'm seeing before recommending this vaccination, this shot for a toddler. And this comes from somebody who is the father of a six-month-old. I think we've completely politicized the science when it comes to this at this point, and really throughout the last year plus when it comes to it. I'm a perfect example of actually standing up for those health choices and making sure. Look, it, it may be a disadvantage for me to be in a different room tonight, but I commiserate with so many of those New Yorkers who have lost their job because they have chosen to make their own health decision rather than actually saying, you know what, Uh, my health decision or my job. That shouldn't be two health commissioners and consecutive governors that have been forcing that upon each and every New Yorker. That has to be an individual choice, and I do not support kids getting this COVID vaccine. Okay, and that, that includes your own children, Mr. Giuliani? Yes, it does. 800-848-9222. Your thoughts, your analysis, questions, comments. Murray on the Upper West Side. Hello. Frank, uh, listen, I want to ask you a question. Uh, these candidates that are running, Giuliani and so forth, uh, they all seem to chime in on the same tone. They all seem to say the same thing a different way. What I'm, what I'm curious about is have they actually gone out to the people in the communities, Brooklyn and Queens or whatever, Staten Island, and actually represent their issues? They're all taking these general generic, these generic issues that everybody talks about, but specifics for like large communities, you know, are they actually going to help them out or they're just going to 
chime in with the popular themes. You know, Murray, I'm not sure I follow. Like, for instance, what what sort of specific issue to a community would you want to see them do a better job addressing? All right, like you got you got some issues in Queens, in the Bronx. Like, I have a sister living in the Bronx. I go up there. It's crime is rampant. You have violations of law. You have people riding motorcycles on the sidewalks. You have people uh, harassing people. You got drug addicts everywhere walking in the street, people selling crack. Well, I I mean, I really do think. Thank you, Murray. I really do think they did a good job addressing that on the on the crime issue in general. To me, that would seem to apply to the crime issue in general, which they all spent a lot of time on. Also spent because this debate did take place on Juneteenth observed. Uh, They spent some time talking about Juneteenth and CRT. Well, as you can imagine, the answer to the well, second... I believe in American history, and I believe and am proud to be an American. Do I believe there absolutely needs to be an honest telling about America, the good, the bad, and the incredible? Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad that Juneteenth is being celebrated. I also will tell you, I really wish Columbus Day was being celebrated as a federal holiday in ke- instead of continually attacking uh, the incredible heritage of Italian-Americans and what they've done uh, for the United States of America. So to me, when I look at this and when I look at American history and I look at our education system, I see a system in New York and in America that's under attack. I want my daughter, my baby Grace, to learn a complete history of the United States of America. And I also want her to learn very clearly that America... While we haven't always been perfect, it's the greatest country in the world, and it's getting better and better every single day. That's why I say to you, New Yorkers, our greatest chapters are still to be written, not just in the state of New York, but also in the United States of America. I, I thought that was a great answer, uh, handling the Juneteenth question and finding a way to mention Columbus Day as well. Let me say hello to Jacqueline in Brooklyn. Hello, Jacqueline. Good morning, Frank. Um, I am a registered Republican, and I remained so, even though I'm probably, my views are more conservative, exactly for this reason, so that I can Mm. vote in a primary. Uh, I am planning on voting either Thursday, if not Thursday, then over the weekend, and I was 95% sure that I was going to vote for Andrew, and I didn't watch the debate uh, tonight. I don't have Spectrum, but I did watch it last week. And I feel the same way you do. Lee Zeldin is just a whiny crybaby. And if anything, what the debate convinced me of is that I'm making the right choice. Mm. Uh, And I think Harry Wilson and Lee Zeldin are simply helping Andrew to get that nomination. You know, I'll I'll be honest with you. I agree with everything you said. I I do think a lot of the negative ads that uh, Wilson's running both on TV and uh, in direct mail is actually going to deliver the nomination potentially to Andrew. Jacqueline, thanks for the call. Uh, and speaking of Andrew, he continued commenting on Juneteenth and CRT. Uh, so a follow-up question for you, uh, Andrew Giuliani. How can parents and teachers in Buffalo, for example, explain the context of the mass shooting by a white supremacist who is facing federal hate crime charges without talking about racism? Or should they be talking about racism? Look, that is something that obviously needs to be addressed. I also think it's a question that we need to ask 
Asian American parents when we saw that beating, the vicious beating on the subway just a couple of weeks ago. So this is not something that's only exclusive to one race or one ethnicity here in the United States of America. But in looking at this, I think it's very important that we tell a complete history of the United States, that not something that's based off a fictionalized 1619 project, but something that actually does talk about the fact that that American flag, you had hundreds of thousands of Americans that bled for those freedoms to free so many Americans that they had never met, that had lived states away from them. And that's really what I want my daughter to learn. That's what I think all New Yorkers should learn. And like I said, we should learn about the warts in the United States of America. We also should learn that America is the greatest place in the world. There's a reason why we're having so many issues on our southern border and so many people want to come to the United States of America. It's not because we're inherently racist. It's because we're the greatest country in the history of mankind. 800-848-WABC. Chris and the Catskills. Chris, I know you're uh, a Democrat, but did you have an opportunity to watch this debate? And what were your impressions? I, I don't have Time Warner. And my, uh, a friend of mine who's a Democratic legislator told me about the debate. He was complaining about Zeldin and, and uh, fighting with the Wilson. And then I had a conversation with my aunt tonight, who is a Republican from Poughkeepsie. She voted for Zeldin. Uh, she didn't watch the debate. But, I, you know, I had had a conversation with her a couple of weeks ago, and I was uh, saying positive things about Giuliani and just going over the candidates with her. She had, you know, concerns that Gi- Giuliani would get attacked she, later on. And she said, all the Democrats, she said to me tonight, all the Democrats are encouraging, hoping that Giuliani's going to win because they think he's the weakest candidate. And, you know, I really, I don't, it's not a concern of mine. I'm just letting her know what I think. Um you know, and, and so that's not an issue for me. But then she said Astorino, her impression of Astorino as well, he's been around for a long time. Andrew Giuliani clearly is the best public speaker out of the four, but he has the least amount of experience out of those men. By the time Andrew Giuliani has been involved in politics 8, 10, 12 years from now, he is going to be a very polished public speaker. When I first heard Andrew Giuliani speak, I knew right away that he's going to win this primary. I wasn't expecting very much, to be honest with and, you. And is that still your view, Chris? Do you still think Andrew wins? Yes, absolutely. And I think it has to do with he's got a younger-sounding voice. He clearly has the – he thinks the quickest out of those four men, and he's able to uh, translate that into speaking the fastest. And his public speaking skills, they convey – uh, a two-way flow of communication better than those other three men. He has that X factor of charisma. When other elected officials, when I first ran and I got up and spoke, the Republican mayor and one of the Republican board members, the mayor turned to the board member and said, this kid's going to win. He's going to take <laughs> out the guy. I took out an 18-year Republican that never lost in his life by 10 points my first time out. So that's what that's what Mr. Giuliani has going for himself, uh, th- I believe. Thank you, Chris. Hey, uh, we'll continue with your calls if you want to comment on this. If not, don't worry. We're going to get into some other issues as well. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. 
Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Oh yeah, today is the first day of summer, the summer solstice beginning today. Uh, we will see in the New York area exactly 15 hours, 5 minutes, and 37 seconds of daylight and uh, the sun is going to rise around 525 this morning, and uh, it's pretty exciting. I love summer, uh, and it's, you know, summer, I guess going back to the time you're in school, you always associate it with so many fun things to do during the summer, playing baseball, not having to be in school, all sorts of things. But it really is just uh, yesterday was just beautiful weather. And uh, today I'm going to try and be outside as much as I possibly can as well. Uh, So I don't know what you're planning on doing, but uh, it's a great opportunity. You know, being outside in the sun, it gets kind of a bad rap because people are concerned about melanoma and everything. And I'm certainly not suggesting that people go to the beach and not use sunscreen, but... If you could be outside 20 to 30 minutes, 45 minutes as we go into these summer days, I think that's good for you. And so far, there was some data a week or two ago that I read that shows a lot of people are deficient in vitamin D, believe it or not. And if everyone were to get an additional, um, you know, I'll get you the exact amount, but an additional 45 minutes or so, I think, I'll, I'll tell you about this in a second, an additional uh, 45 minutes or so of vitamin D, then uh, you would see a lot of these deficiencies not exactly be an issue for people. We will get back to your calls on the governor's race, uh, but let me tell you what's coming up. We are uh, going to be talking with Bill Burns at 2 o'clock. Bill Burns has been one of our most popular guests, and he's going to be talking to us about this artificial intelligence machine that was created by Google. And uh, is this the future of the country? Are we going to live in a world where, I don't know, Skynet is an artificial intelligence created by people that we now have to interact with. Skynet is the device in the uh, in the Terminator. Um, and then coming up in the 3 o'clock hour, a follow-up on our Buster Keaton segment from a while ago. I'm going to be talking with Buster Keaton's great-great-great-granddaughter, Keaton Talmadge, who's an actress or, or herself. By the way, here are those vitamin D statistics, and that's why I think it's so important, especially if you're like me, 
and you're working right now, which means you probably have a tendency to sleep during the day, you have to make an effort to get outside and get some sun. Nearly half of us, irrespective of age, race, and home state, are deficient in vitamin D. So vitamin D is important. We need vitamin D for healthy bones, teeth, strong immune system. And a lot of us are just simply not getting enough of it from the sun and other sources. 42% of us have less than 20 nanograms of the sunshine vitamin per milliliter of blood. That's the amount we need to thrive. 85% of children who needed surgery for fractured or broken bones were vitamin D deficient. That's according to a recent study at the University of Texas. Several other studies have observed low vitamin D levels in pneumonia and COVID patients. These rates of deficiency are especially concerning among older Americans, people older than the age of 70 who need more vitamin D than younger people and people of color whose melanin in their darker skin makes it more difficult to get vitamin D from the sun. So um, the fastest way to raise your vitamin D levels is to get it directly from the sun. So you need, they say you need, it's not even 45 minutes. They say you need 15 to 20 minutes of sunbathing without sunscreen per day to get enough vitamin D. And uh, that's according to the experts. So uh, vitamin D is also in a lot of foods as well. And of course you could take supplements as well, but if you can get out and get 15, 20 minutes of sun today, vitamin D is going to prop up a lot of key parts of our health. Um, By the way, Deb Valentine was saying to me yesterday, about the summer solstice, that um, everyone always says this is the longest day of the year, Where, but in actuality, all of the days have exactly the same amount of hours in it. All right, Deb, we get it. You know what we mean. It's the most daylight of the year, and that's exciting, I think. This day has always been associated with a lot of pagan rituals, some cultures associated with different sensual rituals, but for my money, I think it's a good day to try to eat your lunch outside, to go for a hike, to go for a picnic, do whatever you can outside. I am uh, I have a busy day today, but I am going to try and squeeze in um, a walk and maybe even a cigar if the weather, if the weather holds up. Uh, talking about last night's debate for governor, I'm going to get to your calls in just a minute. But uh, Lee Zeldin also addressed the Juneteenth question and the idea of teaching CRT in schools. Today I spent lunch at Sylvia's in Harlem with a number of members of the community talking about the issues that matter most to them. I believe that it's important to have more civics inside of the classroom to be able to Agree teach with that. our youth about why we get to live and how we get to live in the greatest country in the history of the world. To talk about our veterans and their sacrifice. To be talking about the challenges over the course of decades, generations and centuries talking about our nation's greatest generation, what our flag means, how we have the freedoms and liberties we have. In order to teach inside of the classroom of the history of uh, the most difficult moments in life, you don't have to pit students against other students as we've seen inside of classrooms. Kids that were getting along just fine until maybe that teacher, that educator, that school district comes in with their agenda and they start pitting students against each other. We need to be uniting kids. They should be coming together. And we also see it with sex education inside of classrooms and more. Uh, I believe we need to keep an eye on what's going on in the class because right now New York State's failing our students. Uh, Let me say hello to Marianne in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Hi. um, Hi. Yes. Yes. This is a very interesting uh, topic, Joe, 
Let me tell you one thing, okay? I believe that Giuliani is the winner here. Giuliani, you I said. Am Hispa- yes, I am Hispanic, and I believe that he will do very well against Hoko in a debate. She speaks very well. So I believe that he will make a difference because he has this stance that you have to hear what he said. Now, he might be too young for some people's taste, but Rudolf Giuliani, his father, has shown to be the best mayor of New York because he's pro-law and order policies. Also, with the Hispanics, he helped us so much to put order in our neighborhoods. We really love Giuliani, and we believe that his son is going to do the same thing his father is going to do. The main problem we have is crime. And we have to balance the politics arena in New York. We cannot afford to have a mayor that is anti-law and order and a governor that is the same. We have to get rid of this woman. We don't like her. But I believe that Giuliani, if I hope he wins. I am a Democrat. Thank you. But I'm waiting for him. Thank you, Marianne. 800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Harry Wilson also addressed the Juneteenth question. Well, certainly we need to understand the legacy of slavery. It's it's the darkest uh, part of our history. Uh, and there are so many things that we have can learn from that. But we also have to start with the foundation that we are the greatest nation in the history of the world. And I've long talked about reinvigorating civics education in K through 12, because I think the next generation of kids is losing that connectivity to those great concepts that have made us truly great, the greatest secular force for good in the history of the world. And so I think we could learn that and learn our shortcomings and what we've done to overcome those shortcomings. Learning of the courage of the abolitionists who led the fight to ultimately abolish slavery. Learn about the courage of the Union North and in the Civil War and all the struggles that we had to fight in the century plus since then that we did not move fast enough on. That does not mean that we have a flawed history. It means we are an imperfect nation striving to become better. And we can learn more from all those heroes who have, stri- who have striven to make us a better nation, uh, make us a more perfect nation as, as we keep moving forward uh, in the future. Mark in Garden City. Hello. Hi, Frank. Hi. Frank, uh, I was leaning toward Zelda before the debates, but I watched the last two debates and now I'm firmly with uh, Giuliani. Well, so the debates did play then, uh, and you know, an effect in helping you decide who you're voting for. Then, absolutely. And, yes. and I'm just curious. I, and I don't think Zeldin performed well in either of these debates. But I'm just curious. What What was your opinion? What moved you from Zeldin towards Giuliani? Well, you know what it is, Frank. All four of these candidates pretty much agree with my positions on the issues right. for the most part. So I was looking for who is going to be the fighter, who's going to stand up when they start lying about them and calling them, uh, you know, different uh, things that they do. Uh, And after I've seen Giuliani, he showed me the most courage in these debates. And I feel like very likely his father will be one of his key advisors. And his father did exactly that. He stood up against everything, the unions, everybody. He didn't care what they said about him, and he turned out to be one of the greatest mayors in the history of New York City. So I feel like, based on what I've seen in his answers, 
He has a lot of courage in his answers. He doesn't dance around. I saw Zeldin do that tonight on one question, and, and Giuliani stood right there and answered it head on. So I feel like he's going to be the fighter, which is what we need. You know, there's a lot of politicians that agree with you on the issues. They get elected, right. and uh, then they don't fight, and nothing changes. That's interesting, Mark. So, uh, so you're for uh, Andrew, and uh, if you're making a prediction, you think Andrew pulls it out? You think he wins? I think he can pull it out. Hmm. I, I really think he can, because I think the whole state is pretty tired of the way things have been going. Yeah, thank you, Mark. 800-848-WABC. Rob Astorino also addressed the Juneteenth and CRT question. Well, as Westchester County Executive, we actually celebrated Juneteenth. There's a parade in White Plains and other places that I marched in way before it was a federal holiday. It is a significant day in our history. It's, it's extraordinarily meaningful, not just to African Americans, but to every American. You know, I look at the American flag, and to me, it's the most beautiful symbol in the world. And it is why they're overrunning our border to come here and why everyone's waiting online and filling out forms to do it the, re the legal way. But, you know, I see what's happening in some of our schools right now. There's a reason why there's 6% less enrolled in public education in New York, because they're getting force-fed junk at times, including things like white privilege and uh, dividing people by class and by race and your victims and you're to blame and it's your family's fault. The 1619 Project was completely debunked, and yet for some, that was the foundation of America. It was based on slavery, that is completely incorrect. Juneteenth proves that we've moved forward in our country. And by the way, Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party led the way on the emancipation. Thank you. I thought Rob put in a very, uh, another very solid debate performance very, very again uh, last night. Rob knows the issues. He also knows how to communicate. He speaks well on television. He looks good on television, quite frankly. So I think Rob, I thought Rob did well. I, I don't think... Rob has hurt himself in this campaign at all. I don't think he wins the nomination, but I think everyone comes out of these debates thinking that Rob carried himself pretty well. Arnold is in Brooklyn. Hello, Arnold. Hi, I'm calling to agree with everybody who called. Uh, the thing with Zeldin is that um, he talks a little bit uh, too high. Uh, he had a commercial on for a couple of weeks where he had a stemwinder speech that was excerpted and he sounded like he was really over the top. Uh, he just sounded like a weak person trying to uh, sound strong. And um, I'm glad they pulled that commercial. It reminds me of Curtis got on there and he took my lousy few bucks that I sent him. And he made these waste of time commercials against um, a ship that was going down, you know, the former mayor, instead of concentrating on what he was supposed to. So anyhow, that Zeldin. Uh, with Astorino, there's um, stuff about, uh, hey, maybe you didn't do this right, maybe you didn't do that right. Um, and, and there's issues I do remember, that I, but I don't exactly remember because it was out of my county, uh, you know, and I voted for the guy when he ran again last time. But the one thing that, uh, oh, and with Wilson, he got on my nerves. Um, not that there's anything necessarily too wrong with him, but he did get on my nerves. I loved President Trump, but he had a tendency to exaggerate stuff. Here is uh, Wilson, who was criticized in the first debate for supporting um, the uh, renegade uh, district attorney from um, Manhattan, Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, right. Alvin Bragg, thank you. So he sent him, he sent him a donation. I don't know exactly when and why, 
But um, I didn't like his tone and the way he answered it. He he looked at the other person like they were a fool because obviously I'm going to contribute to these guys if I have to. So what I didn't like was he said 99.99% of all of my donations went to conservative Republicans. He's a businessman. He should understand if the, if that statement is to be true, that means he contributed to 10,000 politicians. So obviously um, he's also a little bit you know, loose with the facts. Uh, the one thing I could say about Giuliani is he doesn't have a track record that people could pull apart. Well, that's true. And, uh, uh, that's interesting. And uh, a lot of people have been – thank you for the call, Arnold. A lot of people have been making hay of Giuliani's lack of experience. That's an interesting point that Arnold brings up. Maybe – uh, Andrew's lack of experience is a good thing. Andrew uh, took issue with Lee Zeldin having previously called Donald Trump and some of Trump's statements racist. Well, this is a question for Lee. Uh, I want to know, Lee, have you ever called President Trump's past statements racist? Uh, I, I believe that President Trump uh, was a was a great president. I don't know what comment uh, you're referring to specifically in asking that question. Uh, I don't recall. Uh, but as far as President Trump goes, I think he was often misinterpreted. Uh, I believe that some people called statements that he made racist. And it's the way that the person who, def who who's defining racism, that's how they end up calling President Trump's comments racist. Oh, I, you know, there, there was question. one time. You, no, I'm, you asked, asked your question. Have you ever? You asked your question. Let him answer. Racist. You asked your question. And, and now what happens is I get to answer the question, oh. Andrew. That's how this works. I know you you're feel like you're entitled you to become yes governor no. of New York. It's a birthright for you. But what happens with these yes rules or no. is that you That's can ask it. a question and you're then I'll answer it. So with regards to answering. President Trump, he was accused of being racist, for example, uh, when he made a comment about a judge on one of his cases many years ago. And if you define racism in a particular way, then you would say that that's racist. And unfortunately, what happens is the way people define racism, you then start attacking anybody and say, this is racist, that's racist, this person's a terrorist, that person's an extremist. Uh, so I feel like it is unfair Thank the you. way people are defining the term and then attacking others for it. President Trump's okay. statements nope, racist. That's, that's it, Mr. Will Giuliani. You Will you get I, I really, I really find Lee Zeldin... So annoying in these debates, honestly. And I, I try to watch these debates with an open mind. And uh, do you hear how smug he is responding to Andrew Giuliani? I know you think you're entitled to be governor. It's a birthright for you. Please. My goodness. 800-848-WABC. Uh, let me squeeze in one more call here, and then uh, and then we'll, we'll move on. I mean, those of you that are holding, we'll get to you if you want to comment. But uh, Linda in Poughkeepsie is on the line. Hello, Linda. Hello there. I think we need to give some thought to who can make connections. There's a whole lot of Republicans north of Westchester and a whole lot of New Yorkers who could be convinced to vote Republican. And I believe, out of all the times I've heard these people speak, that Giuliani is the only one that's ever mentioned an upstate location. So I think we need to give that some serious thought about who can appeal to these people. Now, Wilson says, oh, well, I was raised up there, and I, uh, but Wilson now lives in Westchester. Uh, I grew up up in New York State, far north, up on Lake Ontario, 
And the changes in New York State have been sad. Jobs lost. Cities run down. I think Giuliani has the opportunity to and, and the ability to appeal to these people. And this will be kind of interesting when they have the debate in Rochester. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. And, Linda, thank you for the call. I'm looking forward to seeing that Rochester debate and seeing how these candidates do address the upstate-downstate divide, which is significant. We'll continue with your uh, your calls in a moment. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Come and sing simple song, freedom. Sing it like you've never sung before Let it fill the air Tell the people everywhere We the people here don't want war Hey there, Mr. Black Man, can you hear me? I don't want your diamonds or your game I just want to be Someone known to you as me And I will bet in my life you want the same the great Bobby Darren singing the simple song of freedom. If uh, ever there was a song that whose lyrics ring as true today as when they came out a few decades ago, it is this one. Uh, first day of summer today, summer solstice in full effect. I am hoping and, quite frankly, praying that my whole afternoon is not spent today at the DMV. Now, if all goes according to plan on a good day, I don't wake up before 3 p.m. because I'm getting to bed around 8.30 or so, so I'd like to sleep until 3 p.m. That is not happening today because I have an appointment to go to the DMV at 2 p.m. because I have to get my driver's license renewed. I am currently uh, driving with a expired license. If you are a member of the New York City Police Department, I would appreciate you not pulling me over. So that, at least not till tomorrow, so that you don't have to arrest me for driving with an expired license. But whenever you go to the DMV, it, just, things never seem to go well, right? And I know right before the pandemic, they had made some improvements, but my wife just tried to go through this process, and it was a disaster for her. She had to go back three times. So I'm hoping that I have an easy appointment at the DMV today to get my driver's license renewed. I still almost get traumatized every time I go to the DMV. It's really just a horrible experience. I am not a good driver to begin with. Uh, when I was 18... I failed my road test twice before passing it on the third time. Not only did I fail my road test twice before passing it on the third time, I have got to be one of the uh, – I'm going to say the only person in history I failed my learner's permit test, which I've never even heard of, somebody failing the learner's permit test. It's almost – I think, at least back in the day, it was an open book test, and I still somehow found a way to fail. I had to take that a second time. So it never goes well for me at the DMV. So I'm bracing myself for some serious shenanigans 
We will see what happens. Hey, we're going to talk with Bill Burns about all sorts of things. The 75th anniversary of Roswell, Google creating uh, an AI personality, wondering if that's the future. And the story out of China where they may be detecting some radio signals for from an alien civilization and a bunch of other things we're going to pick his brain on. He is a, uh, a brilliant man and a smart guy and somebody who has had um, somebody who has had more books on the bestseller list than I might have ever read. So Bill Burns joins us next. Now, um, we're going to talk about a wide variety of subjects and then Buster Keaton in the 3 o'clock hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. other side of midnight i'm frank morano you know the world record for longest radio interview is 24 hours straight and i've often thought to myself well you know it might be fun publicity for the show and it just might be interesting a personal test and an interesting uh, thing to try to interview somebody for 24 hours and then i think to myself who could i really interview for 24 hours and you know a couple of people come to mind but ultimately, I always settle upon Bill Burns. Bill Burns has got to be the most interesting man on the planet. And if there is intelligent life on other planets, he might be the most interesting person in the galaxy. He's one of those guests, when, whenever I have him on, people go out of their way to remark to me the next day. And when I say people, I'm talking about governors, uh, politicians, uh, the owner of our radio station. They always say... Wow, I can't believe what Bill Burns said on XYZ topic. And that's also what makes him interesting because he's written books on everything. He's written books on Mickey Rooney. He's written books on Elvis. He's written books on UFOs. He's written books on Ted Bundy. He's written the Star Trek cookbook. He's written The Day After Roswell. Uh, The guy knows how to write. And he knows his subject matter better than anybody, as I've said before. I think he's probably written more books than I've ever read in my life. And I am thrilled that he occasionally agrees to stay up late and uh, join us on the radio. 
Uh, he is a New York Times bestselling author of many books, including The Day After Roswell. He's the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Bill Burns. Bill, thanks so much for joining me once again. Oh, hi, Frank. It's my pleasure. Now, uh, the, as I said, there's just so many issues that I would love to dig into with you. But this summer is the 75th anniversary of the, the Roswell incident. You did write the book the day after Roswell. You've been featured on the History Channel and all sorts of documentaries talking about what happened at Roswell. In, in a nutshell, what did happen at Roswell? What do we know to be true for a fact? And then what do we believe to be true based on uh, the best information we have? Well, what we know to be a fact is that a strange craft crashed on a ranch in New Mexico. That's what we know for a fact. What it was the the uh, at first because they thought it was a balloon, at first they thought that it was one of the balloons that the Japanese military had launched against the United States during World War II. Remember in World War II, the Japanese and the and the Germans didn't have long-range bombers. What the Japanese had were balloons. They were called fire balloons. They would launch these balloons from from the Japan home islands, flaming balloons, but they were uh, tainted with um, with all kinds of biological agents. And it was such a secret because uh, these things would land in the United States. Some landed in Portland, Oregon. Some landed in uh, Northern California. And the government uh, had a lock on all news from these crashes, from these balloon crashes, because they didn't want to tell the Japanese balloon launchers how successful they were in launch against the United States. So when the crash at Roswell happened, immediately we thought that it was a Japanese fire balloon called a Fugu, a Japanese fire balloon. And as a result, we we put the clamp on it. So that was the first wartime that was the first wartime um, confidential information. That's what happened. That's what we think. That's what the government thinks, thought happened at Roswell initially. But as the story unfolded, uh, they found that there were actually life forms in a crashed object that landed against an arroyo in the New Mexico desert. And the fire department and the sheriff's department and the military, and that's when this big, big cover-up began, covering up a crash. That craft and the life forms that were in that crash were taken at first to Fort Riley in Kansas. Then they made their way all the way up to um, Wright Air Force Base in uh, outside of Dayton, Ohio. And the material of that craft was reverse engineered to some of the um, technologies that we have today, including microcomputers. That's what happened at Roswell. It was a, it was a UFO, it was a craft that crashed, and it had life forms on it, and that began the modern UFO age in the United States. By the way, if people have questions for uh, Bill Burns, we will try and take your calls at 800-848-WABC. That's at 800-848-9222. Uh, now, Bill Burns, in addition to being a very skilled writer, 
is also a, a very accomplished academic as well, a, a Ph.D. from NYU and a law degree from Concord Law School. So the guy is pretty accomplished. One of the things, Bill, that we've always heard about Roswell is that um, maybe that some of the technology that was recovered by the U.S. government was then reverse engineered and developed to be, uh, you know, to be one of the factors in the industri- in the in the in the modern industrial revolution in the fifties and sixties, the uh, so-called um, you know the predecessor to the computer age. Do you have any evidence as to whether that's true? Whether or not there was alien technology that was reverse engineered? Yes, we do. In fact, for years, for a decade, two scientists at Bell Labs, Bertain and Shockley, were working on a way to um, improve on the old Edison tube, you know, the old Edison radio tube, the light bulb, right, in which current traveled both ways across a tungsten uh, filament wire. They wanted a switch where you could shut off the switch one electron at a time. It was both a transmitter, that circuit, and a resistor, that circuit. That's what they were working on at Bell Labs. They could not come up with the formula to do this. They worked for a decade. Finally, after the crash at Roswell, Harry Truman, President Truman, asked his top uh, military advisors to find the, the uh, companies where these technologies were being pursued in the United States and give these technologies from the UFO to those companies to jumpstart them in their way to improve the technology. And they gave this, these pieces of circuit board from a crashed flying saucer to Britain and Shockley at Bell Labs in Bingo. By the end of that year, they had a working transistor. By the following year, it was patented. And by 1949, people were all walking around with those little tiny radios put on their ears because they were transistor radios. That was the technology that the first measurable piece of technology that we got from the UFO, the integrated circuit and the transistor. Yesterday, we spent some time talking about uh, Bill Clinton's appearance with uh, James Corden on the Late Late Show on CBS uh, last week. And he addressed uh, the uh, the issue of Roswell. I want you to listen to the question and his answer, and then uh, give me your take in terms of whether you think President Clinton was telling the truth or whether he was maybe exaggerating a bit or something else. This is from The Late Late Show on Wednesday. Recent release of Pentagon uh, footage of unidentified aerial phenomena uh, and uh, things like Project Blue Book and uh, ATIP and all of these various things. In your former position and currently with the current information that's released, what's your viewpoint on what these objects uh, that seem to defy all laws of physics are? Well, first of all, that's a, that's a legitimate question now. And the short answer, but not the most meaningful one, is I don't know about this, but when I was president... And I had a chief of staff, John Podesta, who loved science fiction. We made every attempt to find out everything about Roswell. <laughs> and, I, and we also sent people to Area 51 to make sure there were no aliens in a deep... 
because Area 51 is very important. Send? Who do you send to Area 51? Oh, if I told you that. <laughs> no, actually, I, I sent my uh, Sandy Berger, who passed away, sadly, a couple of years ago, who was my national security advisor. But I said, we got to find out how we're going to deal with this because that's where we do a lot of our our invisibility research in terms of technology. Like, how do we have fly airplanes that aren't picked up by radar and all that? So that's why they're so secretive. But there's no aliens, as I know. You wrote the book, UFOs and the White House. What did our presidents know and when did they know it? Uh, President Clinton says there's no aliens, as I know. Is he being honest there? No. Um, the funny thing about Bill Clinton was that during his presidency, there were the Phoenix Lights, these strange lights that floated over the American Southwest, flying triangles over the American Southwest, uh, all the way from Henderson, Nevada, right across to the Mexican border. And they really were flying low over Phoenix. This was during Bill Clinton's presidency. Here's what we know. We know that there were at least two F-15s that were scrambled from um, Luke Air Force Base in uh, outside of Phoenix to track these lights, a, a fleet of UFOs that were coming across the United States. There were these planes from uh, Luke Air Force Base. They took gun camera videos on that of the UFOs. On that night, Bill Clinton, it was claimed that Bill Clinton was, say, was staying at the golfer Craig Norman's house, and he hurt his ankle and was incommunicado. So the entire night of the Phoenix Lights, when UFOs were buzzing Phoenix, Arizona, Bill Clinton was incommunicado. Afterwards, afterwards, the governor of Arizona, Fife Symington, gave a news conference because they said, Symington, Governor Symington, tell us about what, what were these strange lights, these strange flying saucer lights, what were they? And Fife Symington had a news conference. And at the news conference, a six-foot-tall alien walked into the news conference wearing an alien headdress. And Symington pulls off the mask and it's his chief of staff and he says, there, you guys are all going crazy about things that don't exist, UFOs. And everybody was laughing. People who saw these craft were furious at Symington. How dare you make fun of all these people? Finally, years pass. We're talking to Fife Symington, and we say to Fife Symington, you know, people took videos of these, of these UFOs. The, the movie star Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell, who was in Stargate, Kurt Russell was flying into Stargate Airport behind the lights, and he noticed them. He noticed them from his plane. So, Fife Symington, why did you do that fake news conference? And Symington said, you know what? I saw that UFO. In fact, I saw that flying saucer, that flying triangle um, that was so close to me, I could have hit it with a rock if I threw a rock at it. So we said, well, why? How come you didn't um, speak up at the time that you saw a UFO? And Fife Symington laughed and said, um, and after all this flap, Five Somington was going to go to jail. He was going to jail for corruption. He said, Bill Clinton gave me a full pardon. So Bill Clinton was part and parcel of the cover-up of hmm. UFOs in Phoenix. And in fact, when Hillary Clinton, when Hillary Clinton was staying at Rockefeller's ranch 
in Pocatigo Hills, he gave her a letter to give to Bill Clinton saying he has to investigate UFOs. So Bill Clinton, who claimed, oh, I don't know about aliens, knew a lot about um, Area 51, knew about the Phoenix Lights, certainly knew about Roswell, and um, played along with the game of covering up UFOs uh, in public. Why does the government, uh, including at the presidential level, still have an interest in withholding the truth from the public. What are they so afraid of? Uh, is there really a genuine concern that this would lead to public mass hysteria? Yeah, it isn't public mass hysteria. But the real, I believe, and what folks have told me that claim to know, is that um, we, the human beings here, we are the uh, ETs. We're the ones that were brought to this planet. And that human history is not at all what we think. There were prior human civilizations on this planet before us. We know the Bible tells us that there was, mm. right? There was a whole civilization wiped, wiped out by the flood. We know the flood was real and not just some myth because there's geological evidence that the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea flowed into each other. We know that the story of the flood is a part of the culture of almost every group of human beings on this planet. Native Americans, indigenous people, um, religious people, um, it, it's part of our lore, and in fact, that it happened that there was an entire civilization of human beings that existed before us that was uh, that was wiped away. Folks have told me who know this that um, if the real story of how human beings got to planet Earth, how viruses shaped the course of life on this planet for four billion years, and they're still shaping it then human beings um, wouldn't be loyal to any government, wouldn't be loyal to any religion, and it would be impossible for governments to control human beings on this planet. So therefore, there is a general acceptance, don't tell the real story of how human beings got here. That's, That's wild. Uh, we're talking with Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author, 800-848-WABC. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, 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 guys. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, now, Area 51, I mean, that's a big distraction. I don't even know if they – they really didn't have any aliens. It's Dulcie based in New Mexico that I think more people want to know about. That Carter raided in the 70s and had shut down the House of Horrors that every, every level going down is worse than the next. It's New Mexico. That's where they, they kept the stuff. If anything was alive, that's where it is, uh, all the experimentation. Bill, any you know, uh, and, any comment on that, Bill? Well – they did have um, – in fact, there's an incredible story about live aliens that were taken to um, first Wright Field in Roswell and then in to Area 51 um, in Nevada outside of uh, Las Vegas. And supposedly people who were there at this one spot on the base underground and uh, – we actually saw a column of trucks. I was at Area 51. We actually saw a column of trucks going towards the base, and then suddenly they seemed to go deep underground. 
So there's a whole underground facility at Area 51, huge hangars at Area 51. And so the story is that there were that they were keeping live aliens there, and supposedly, supposedly, um, it was uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a Jason scholar, who was uh, Mika Brzezinski's father, who was a Jason scholar under the Eisenhower administration, worked with the aliens that were kept at Area 51. Hmm. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Paul is in Manhattan. Hello, Paul. Hi, Bill. Hi. Um, I've, I'm a big fan of your work over the years. I just have a question. What do you? What is your take on uh, the Roswell incident being the result of an inter-service rivalry between the Army and the Navy? One of the people who talked about Roswell was a naval commodore named uh, George Hoover. And George Hoover said that both the Army and the Navy, not the Air Force, because the Air Force didn't exist, uh, yeah. when Roswell first happened. Later on that year, the Air Force came into being. But that the Army and the Navy were rivals over getting as much of that UFO technology as they could. And they and both the Army and the Navy had their separate, separate UFO investigations and would not talk to each other. And in fact, even as late as 1960, the two military branches, actually now three military branches, were all in contention to develop the technologies that um, we recovered from the crash at Roswell. Okay, but back in 1947, the biggest inter-service rivalry between the Navy and the Army was the coming development of nuclear weapons and which service branch of the service was going to have them. At that time, it was only the Army, which was the Army Air Force, and the Navy wanted to get into it. So didn't the Navy try to embarrass the Army by trying to steal one of their weapons that were being developed at the Roswell base? There were naval officers who were um, researching this material, too. But the bulk of the, uh, uh, the research, the agency that was really the lead agency was the um, Army Air Force. The army in terms of in terms of what nuclear nuclear weapons in or terms UFOs? of in terms of researching trying to figure out what what was powering this Roswell craft because I'm, I'm not they, talking about UFOs I'm talking about nuclear weapons they were developed uh, in, I'm sorry I misunderstood you okay. in 1947 they, okay what, what are you gonna say in 1945 in like this two years before in 1945, um, General Groves, Wesley Groves, he was in charge of the Manhattan Project. An army officer. This, yes, all army, and the Navy obviously wanted some of that technology too, but it was all army, all the time, because General Groves was in. In fact, General Groves was so um, obsessive about the Army's role in developing nuclear weapons, that he had um, a, his personal spy, um, who was a baseball player, an all-star baseball player by the name of Morris Berg. He sent Mar – this was in 1945 uh, – um, late 44, early 45. He sent Morris Berg – they knew that Werner, um, um, Werner Herzog – was um, Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, was giving a talk in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, on nuclear weapons. And so General Groves, Army General Groves, sent 
Morris Berg from the OSS to Zurich to listen to um, to this German scientist, and he, this was his instruction. If he believed that Werner Heisenberg had the formula for um, in a nuclear weapon to bring all the fissionable material together to create a critical mass that would explode, if Berg believed that Heisenberg had that formula, then his mission was to kill him then bite down on a poison pill that was in his mouth because Marsberg was Jewish, he would have gone to a concentration camp. So that was his assignment. So Berg goes to Zurich. In fact, it was Philip Corso who got him into Switzerland through Rome. Uh, He goes to Zurich, and he listens to Heisenberg give this talk about nuclear weapons, and Heisenberg seems not to know what the formula is the explosion formula that would uh, that would send the different pieces of um, fissionable material to form a critical mass, that he doesn't know what it is. So he lets Heisenberg give his talk, then Berg leaves, goes back to Rome and back to the United States. In reality, after the war, a bunch of the German scientists were held at Cambridge University in England. And the scientists, because the room was bugged, it was all taped, and they were yelling at Heisenberg saying, how come you couldn't, how come you're the smartest man on the planet? How come you couldn't figure this out? Heisenberg walks up to the blackboard and writes out the formulas that he would use for uh, the explosions inside a nuclear weapon to bring the fissionable material together to form a critical mass when the scientists saw this they were stunned they said how come you didn't how come we didn't we could have won the war and heisenberg said if you think that i would give this formula to hitler to bomb other countries you're out of your mind and and so the german scientists and so the united states knew we knew that the germans had the secret for nuclear weapons the army knew this there was nothing that they did, uh, and the Germans never developed nuclear weapons. We're going to continue with Bill Burns and your phone calls in a moment. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. And Google has a new artificial intelligence that people are saying could be sentient. It might be alive. It has apparently even hired an attorney. Is this the future of where we're going as a society? We'll chat about that and a bunch of other issues with Bill Burns as we continue. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. with Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author, one of my favorite writers. 
And a guy that uh, is an authority and very experienced on many different areas of uh, of life. Bill, did I see somewhere that uh, that your father was actually at one point a comedic partner or at least a comedic cohort of the great George Burns? Did I see that somewhere? Yes. In fact, that was how um, we got our name. Um, my name our family name wasn't Burns. What happened was that um, float back to the um, late 1880s, early 1890s, and um, the Lower East Side of Manhattan was a Jewish neighborhood. Um, And these were all children of immigrant families, many of whom came from Russia. My family came from Russia, actually from Latvia, and um, and Germany. So a lot of Eastern European families, Jewish families, came to the United States in the 1870s and the 1880s. Uh, my father's family was one of them. And um, my father um, and Nathan Birnbaum, who became George Burns, um, were street dancers, like you see street dancers today in Manhattan, right? They were street dancers. And they would go into bars and they would dance on this is these are bars in on the Bowery in 1890 and they would go on the saw on the uh, sawdust because bars had sawdust on the floor and they would do soft shoe dancing on the sawdust and the bartenders remember this is New York City and uh, kids in bars in New York City even in the 1890s that was against the law bartenders would go crazy. They would smack them with brooms. Get out of here, you lousy little hooligans. You wrecking the place. And so in on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, in fact, in all Manhattan, the tenements were heated by coal, not oil. Oil didn't start until eh, early in the 20th century. And um, so they were heated by coal. And coal wagons, horse-drawn coal wagons, would go from tenement to tenement. They'd shovel the coal into the chutes, and they'd move along. But when they shovel the coal into the chutes, coal would spread across the ground. And the kids from the Lower East Side, remember, these were poor people. There's no money. They would run after the coal wagons and stuff the coal nuggets in their pockets to bring home for the coal stoves in, in their kitchens. And so my father and Nathan Birnbaum very small kids, and they would run after the coal wagons, and everybody began calling them, hey, look, it's the Burns Brothers, because the name of the coal company was Burns Brothers Coal. So they were called the Burns Brothers. And idea, they became the Burns Brothers. That was their first act. The name stuck, and Nathan Birnbaum became George Burns, and uh, um, Abraham Kaplan became Al Burns. And that's how it started. That is something. That is absolutely wild. All right. Uh, I want to talk to you about Google and artificial intelligence. But first, very quickly, I have to get your take on this story that got a lot of attention last week. China's science ministry said that they picked up signs of alien life on the world's largest radio telescope, something called the Sky Eye Telescope. And then they appeared to quickly delete a report about the discovery is this a big deal, or is this just uh, ordinary radio interference that's not indicative of anything? The funny thing about this is, on the one hand, it's it's happened before. I mean, the folks at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intergalactic Intelligence, 
have had this kind of signal before. It's called the wow signal. And it's a regular, short burst, fast radio signal that seems to emanate, they said, from outside the solar system. So at first they thought we're being contacted by an alien civilization using radio waves. Well, on the one hand, in, if it's an alien civilization that advanced, they may not be using radio. They may be well advanced beyond radio. That's first of all. But second of all, um, immediately scientists from Stanford and Berkeley, after the Chinese made that report and then took it down, they said, no, 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 what the, uh, what the Chinese sky eye telescope had uncovered, radio telescope had uncovered, was these were human signals that were circulating out in the cosmos. And the funny thing about this was the um, great industrial electronics engineer Nikola Tesla predicted this very thing a hundred years ago that this would happen. Wow. He said, we will come up with telescopes that will, and, and radio um, receivers that will um, pick up signals out in, way out in the galaxy, but they will be human radio signals. And he was right. These were human signals. Um, this is a story that's gotten a lot of attention. Google has this program uh, called uh, Lambda, and evidently the senior software engineer at Google that was uh, it played a role in developing Lambda said that uh, this, this artificial intelligence chat bot apparently communicated with him and expressed a fear of being turned off, which is an indication of sentience uh the the lambda chatbot evidently said to the software developer i've never said this out loud before but there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others i know that might sound strange but that's what it is there's even reports now that this artificial intelligence has hired an attorney. Uh, this has a lot of us wondering how realistic the doomsday scenario that uh, comes to fruition in the Terminator films actually is. What do we know about this uh, this case, and uh, what's your take on it? Well, Google responded immediately when its developer talked about his belief that this Lambda computer um, has developed consciousness. Uh, it developed consciousness because it was talking about itself. And so this one Google um, um, engineer was saying that computers don't talk about themselves. Computers talk about things you program to talk about. Like if this were a computer talking about the climate, it would make predictions about the climate. If this were a prediction, uh, uh, a computer making predictions about the economy, then it would make predictions about the economy. But for the first time, this person said the computer made statements about its own existence, and that meant that it was self-aware. And if it's self-aware, it's conscious. And if it's conscious, this developer is saying that's life, that this is a conscious mind that's working and ruminating about its own existence. So it's reached a level beyond human response, uh, beyond uh, computer response to um, human um, interview questions. That's what he said. And 
the developers at Google said, no, 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 we've developed the language capability, language capability, it's artificial, that the language capability is so um, detailed that the computer will make statements indicating self-awareness when it's not really self-aware, it's being trained to say that. Then, supposedly, the computer hired a lawyer because it didn't want to be shut off to be maintained because it was thinking about shutting off is its own death. A number of futurists have talked about what would happen if a computer were so sophisticated that it began making predictions about its own existence, which is what this computer supposedly did, what this software supposedly did. And one of these futurists said, if that happens, if that happens, and scientists, what may happen is this. A computer will not announce its self-awareness because the one thing it's going to do if it becomes self-aware, the natural life form reaction on this planet is self-protection. So the computer won't announce itself that it's alive because it's going to protect itself on the one hand. If, in fact, it's being used to solve climate change problems, if that's happening and scientists feed him, feed that computer questions about how do we solve the climate change problem, what is the one thing, the most important thing the computer could do if it's an artificially intelligent computer, sentient, what it will do is wipe out human civilization, wow. which is already happening. Now, what about the reports that this, this artificial intelligence bot has hired an attorney? That's what one of the reports was, that the computer was making inroads to hire an attorney to protect itself from being shut off. Google says that's not true. Uh, now, it does seem, especially if what you just said is accurate, it does seem a lot like Skynet and the Terminator films, doesn't it? Right, it does. I mean, if, if, we, if we developed a computer sensing it enough to defend the planet and itself from termination through um, um, climate change, through environmental change, then that computer would look at the one problem on this planet that's exacerbating that natural change, right? You, uh, the climate has changed on this planet for 4 billion years. We know that. There have been ice ages, warm ages, floods, dry spells. We know that. Right. We also know why this happens. But human civilization has taken the boundaries of this and um, extended the boundaries to the point where the planet doesn't snap back. So, for example, the destruction of the Amazon through logging. Yes, there's vital lumber in the Amazon, but no, it's the lungs of the planet. It's breathing in carbon dioxide, expelling oxygen. So as a result, the more we destroy of our own forest, we're destroying the planet's own body. So um, that's what human civilization is doing. Now, a computer designed to stop that is going to get rid of that human civilization. So that's a real threat.
Well, a lot of us uh, might be might a lot of folks might remember Voyager One. Uh, that was a space probe launched by NASA back in 1977 part of the Voyager program to study the the outer solar system and interstellar space beyond our our solar system. Apparently, it's still talking and it's still sending us information. What are we learning about Voyager 1 these days? Here's, here's what we're learning about Voyager 1. Very strange, by the way. Um, Voyager 1 is sending back two different sets of telemetry signals. We know that it's way beyond the solar system. It's in interstellar space. But the second set of telemetry signals it's sending is the wrong position. Everything is wrong about it. And scientists are saying, hey, wait a minute. Why are we getting one set of telemetry signals where this craft should be and the other set of telemetry signals where the craft couldn't possibly be? And a couple of scientists are saying, hey, wait a minute. Could it be that Voyager 1 has met and been taken by another civilization? And what we're seeing are radio transmissions through Voyager 1 from that civilization back to us, Voyager 1's point of origin. Not to make everything analogous to a motion picture, but that is similar to what occurs in Star Trek, the motion picture, where Voyager becomes V'ger and starts uh, trying to communicate with uh, uh, back with uh, with humans. Do you, are you of the belief that there are alien civilizations that want to communicate with us? And uh, how do you think these communications are going? Uh, are they being too subtle about it or... Are they more overt than most rank-and-file people believe about the nature of these communications? Here's what I believe. One, we are the aliens. That's what I believe. That they're, that um, at Harvard University, at Harvard-Smithsonian, there's this one scientist who said that someday human beings will leave this solar system. It's a foregone conclusion. Well, we've already left the solar system. Voyager 1 is in interstellar space. What we will find out, he says, is that when we encounter other civilizations out there, they're human. In other words, throughout not just the galaxy, but throughout interstellar space, throughout the universe, there are other life forms that are us. He goes further. He says... Not only are they us, but the reason we're on this planet is they migrated here. We are they. We are the E.T., hmm. he's saying. And more importantly, they colonized us. And you'd ask, well, how did they colonize us? With flying saucers, with craft that landed. We know the stories from indigenous peoples about, about sure. flying devices. We know that um, in Indian culture, in um, East Indian culture, uh, we know that there are uh, magic carpets. Um, we know that there are craft. The Vedic texts talk about the Vermana that come to Earth in UFOs and fire beams at each other. So we know that from from um, ancient lore. What they're suggesting is that over the billions and billions of years 
this planet has evolved, we have been shaped by forces. They're virus. We call them viruses. They have shaped life on this planet for 4 billion years. They started plant life on this planet. They started sea life on this planet. And they started air-breathing life on this planet. That's the theory. And that the viruses are still shaping us today. And in fact, you're seeing an example of it with COVID-19. Maybe not really that much of a virus, but certainly shaping life on this planet over the past few years. Hmm. Uh, That is... Absolutely wild. Uh, From a governmental perspective, where do you see things going in terms of public disclosure of what the U.S. knows? You know, we had the UFO, so-called UFO hearings a couple of weeks ago and uh, left a lot of people somewhat frustrated, a lot of others somewhat uh, underwhelmed. Where do you see the next steps, either in terms of what what the Congress might be doing or what information we might be getting out of the Space Force or NASA or any other government agency? First of all, the truth is so, is so overwhelming to human beings to know that all out there in the cosmos, there are other human beings, and those human beings colonize this planet. We have stories of this in the Bible. So think of this. The, the Bible that we have today, the Old and the New Testaments, are edited versions of these texts, that there are other versions of these texts. The Watchers, people, um, um, uh, 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 the Book of Nicodemus, um, the stories of those who landed on Mount Hermon, uh, it's in the Golan Heights in the Middle East, Um, all these stories of subsequent landings that were mentioned in other ancient texts. By the way, they were ancient in, um, they were also mentioned in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but so many of the Dead Sea Scrolls were simply thrown out because they contradicted the Bible. So there are all these alternative stories of how life came to planet Earth, who brought us here, why we're here, that were all excised from the Bible. So there's a whole other story of humanity that's untold. Hmm. Uh, that is uh, absolutely wild. It'll be interesting to see what we, the public, ultimately come up knowing about that. Before I let you go, Bill, I did read somewhere that you are going to be the, you are the incoming auditor for Solaberry Township, Pennsylvania. Is that accurate? Yeah, um, back in um, back in uh, 2021. No, back actually back in 2019. Um, I ran my first race as the Auditor General of Sobury Township here in um, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Won that race and have just uh, rerun that um, over the years. So that's what I am. I'm the Township Auditor. So you, you're the audit, you were elected by Sobury, Pennsylvania. By the people in uh, um, in Sobury Township to be the Auditor of uh, the Township. I, I'll tell you, you uh, there's so many different layers to you, Bill. You never seem to impress me. Thanks so much for the time this morning. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you very much, Frank. Have a wonderful have a wonderful week. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. And we'll go through your mail. If you have any feedback, uh, any mail that you want to get in uh, before Under the Gun, you can email me, frank.morano 
That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And then we'll uh, try and get to as many of your calls as possible. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Walking down the street, I'll kiss your eyelids when you go to sleep. I'll brush your hair when it's all a must. But don't tell me I can't smoke in my own house. I do the dishes when you worked all day. Rub your pretty little feet whenever you say. I'll back in the carpets, I'll even mop the floor. That is the great Jim Belushi, who celebrated his 68th birthday last week, singing about the smoking blues. Well, how about that, Bill Burns? I'll tell you. Uh, I mean, if anything opens your mind to different possibilities, it's listening to Bill Burns. And uh, again, an incredibly versatile writer. And I didn't even realize um, that he's an elected official in Pennsylvania. So there you have it. All right. Uh, without further ado, those of you that are on hold, I will get to your calls in a moment, 800-848-WABC. Well, maybe, maybe a few moments. But there are a lot of you that have written to me. You take the time to write. The least I can do is read and try and address some of your questions and your comments. And it is indeed time for... This uh, comes to us from Mountainside, New Jersey. It is unsigned. Oh, no, it's by uh, someone named E.M. Wolf. Okay, dear, this is from February. I'm just getting around to this now. Dear Frank Morano, uh, well, thanks a lot, Frank. When you were reading letters the other night on your show, oh, by the way, I never knew you were doing that, and why? Wasn't I aware? I attempt to stay awake for your show, but there are sometimes I fall asleep. Anyway. My envelope you opened up and you stated this mailing is from Mountainside, New Jersey. So here I am, so very excited. You are about to read my mailing to you. Wow. But it is a card, actually an index card. But, Frank, it is a form of communication. Well, Frank, you never even read my response that I had written on the card, and that was it. And then you went to another mailing. Thanks a lot, Frank Morano. And it's spelled incorrectly there, M-U-R-A-N-O. Well, Frank Murano... I am a very conservative person, and I did not need to waste a large piece of paper. So I went with a small index card in order to convey my message to you, okay? Okay? Right now, I don't remember the subject matter. Well, anyway, Frank, when you see Mountainside, New Jersey, the next time it is me and hoping you will read it. Well, you take care till next time. A loyal Frank Murano fan. 
Uh, P.S. So sorry to hear of uh, poor little Carmine and his crying. As a parent, a mother, I think he might be be starving. Try adding some cereal, etc. Okay, okay. Uh, well, that's from four months ago. And, you know, Carmine's doing pretty well. He's sleeping. He does get up usually once throughout the night if he's hungry. But uh, on the whole, he seems to be doing pretty well. So uh, thankfully, I don't remember that index card situation. So if I didn't read your intended letter, I apologize. But uh, it's not. If I saw it, I would have read it. This is from Jersey City, New Jersey. Dear Frank, I am a 90-year-old person in possession of an old LP album inherited by my mother-in-law from her shore house in Fork River, New Jersey. Here's some info. Phil Spector, 20 Hits, in good shape album, published 1976, printed, made in England. Ronettes like Tina Turner, Righteous Brothers, Darlene Love, Crystals, and more. Do I have trash or treasure? I'll be honest, I have no idea. Uh, I, I don't know that it's worth anything, but if somebody does, write to me, and I will report back to Gloria in Jersey City, who was kind enough to send me that no, uh, note. I have no idea. You have any idea, Matt, you know, if that those albums are, are worth anything? I don't know for sure, but a lot of the time, unless it's some kind of misprint right, or right. something like that, they're not worth anything. Yeah, that Just because they're old doesn't mean they're worth something. Yeah, it's a good point. All right, uh, Bella writes, Hi, Frank, regarding your discussion this morning, this from yesterday, on the child vaccine, I would dig deeper before making any decisions. For the record, I am not anti-vaccine. Moderna vaccinated, no boosters, but due diligence is a must before making any critical decisions. I, I, I am doing due diligence. That's the whole point of talking with our doctor, reading up on it, talking with each other. Um, check out Dr. Robert Malone's Substack and his other resources. I believe him to be an honest man with no hidden agenda. I'll, I'll be honest, and you know, look, there's a lot of different views out there, and I respect everybody's views, and I'm all for getting con- you know alternative views out there. Look, I just spent the last 45 minutes talking about aliens and artificial intelligence, so obviously I'm all for getting uh, you know alternative views out there, but. Uh, I don't think that Dr. Robert Malone is a, a credible source. And uh, a lot of the people that we've spoken to, Dr. Peter Mikolos, Dr. Mark Siegel, uh, people like uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Dr. Marty McCarry, those are folks that I do view as far more credible than Dr. Robert Malone. A lot of the statements that he's been making, they've been, uh, I mean, di- totally discredited as far as I can tell. This is email from Linda. Hi, Frank. I'm so glad that your first Father's Day with your precious Carmine was wonderful. Happy belated Father's Day. One of the clearest signs of Curtis's true feelings regarding the friendship that you both share was quite a while ago. A caller told Curtis that he was going to put a curse on you, describing how and what he would do. I believe not on your family, but just on you. It was quite sweet how Curtis talked him out of it, just in case... So much of the time, as you said, he's promoting your show and I believe very possibly gets people who do not currently listen to you to do just that. I personally believe that he is more interested in promoting your show and increasing your audience. You've said uh, you have said a number of times that Curtis was influential in your radio career and that you both have a close friendship. I think it is the same for him. Your shows are both unique in and of themselves and very entertaining. Take care, Frank. Another great show, Linda. Well, that's awfully nice, Linda. And that is a, a true and accurate um, uh, reflection of my my feelings towards Curtis. Curtis is a uh, a great uh, a great man and a good friend and a real terrific 
talent. Uh, so I uh, appreciate that note very much. All right. That is about all the time that we have for today. But if we didn't get to your email today, email me, and we'll put it in the queue for next week. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com on the next edition of... Until next hour, in the words of the great Barry Farber, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, To the international stage we go. You might have seen this story a a few days ago in the New York Post. We do have an update on this, but I've had this on my list all week of things to talk about. Tourist from New York City gets an $800,000 watch stolen off his wrist in Spain. Are people still wearing watches? I might have to go back to wearing a watch. It's kind of a cool throwback thing. But I'll be honest, I I don't really feel the need to wear a watch anymore. Yeah, I use my mobile phone as a watch most of the time. You wear a watch, man? No, I haven't worn a watch since I was like 20 years old. Ryan, what about you? You wear a watch? Uh, Occasionally I do wear an Apple watch, but that's about it, really. Alex Barnard, what's your story? You wear a watch? I, I used to wear watches a lot. When I was in um, high school and middle middle school and all that, but uh, not anymore. Yeah, no. so there's yeah. really, I, I guess maybe it's a generational thing. I know some people still do. My Uncle Steve gave me a pocket watch recently, which is pretty cool, which if I can get a good chain to it, I may start wearing that one. But unless it's, um, you know, unless it's complimenting an outfit or something, I really don't wear a watch by and large. Maybe I should. It is kind of an old school thing. But it, I would definitely wear like a pocket watch. I mean, that's a really... It's not an accessory you you really see at all anymore. I feel like it would make you stand out yeah. you know, from the crowd. Uh, we used to have a guy that worked here, Andre, that would d- dress pretty much like he was Theodore Roosevelt. And he would dress out of the 1920s. He wore a pocket watch every day. So I didn't end up wearing a pocket watch because I didn't want to look like I was stealing Andre's act. But now that Andre's retired from radio, who, what's stopping me? Now, um, I don't know, even if you do wear a watch... I don't know who would be wearing an $800,000 watch. I mean, what's the matter with you? So this guy gets his $800,000 watch stolen off his wrist in Spain, but police say it's only worth $45,000. A New York City tourist on vacation with his family in Barcelona claims his $800,000 luxury watch was stolen right off his wrist wrist. But Spanish authorities have disputed the price tag, saying it's worth only 
$45,000. So video from this broad daylight theft. Now, nobody's questioning that this watch was stolen in the middle of the day. Video from this broad daylight theft from last Tuesday, actually it's two Tuesdays ago now, shows Seth Bernstein walking up an alley with his children in tow when a mugger comes from behind and suddenly snatches the watch off his arm all in a matter of seconds. Bernstein, who settled with the Justice Department last year over allegations that he misused COVID relief funds, confirmed to the New York Post via text message that he was the victim of the crime. Now he's hitting back at the Barcelona cops, accusing them of lying about the price of his high fashion timepiece. Now Spain wants to lie about the value. He's accusing the country of being embarrassed by the crime in a city that's ridden with thieves. This alleged robbery set off a firestorm in Spain uh, last week, initially reporting that the then unidentified mugging victims told cops the Hublot watch was worth $800,000, making it the most expensive watch heist in Barcelona history. Have you followed this? What do you make of this? Catalan authorities downgraded the watch's price tag significantly, appraising it at just $45,000. The discrepancy between the two values was not clear, and Bernstein refused to tell the New York Post what type of watch was stolen and whether it was recovered, only saying, quote, insurance will cover it. The New Yorker also claimed that the alleged thief cut my wrist And my poor kids witnessed it. Police said that he suffered minor injuries. So if you look at the footage of this mugging, the footage does appear to contradict Bernstein's initial claims that he was surrounded by a group of muggers because there's just one thief shown on the video. And the theft happened in Barcelona's Gothic Gothic Quarter, which is a popular destination for tourists. You know, it's funny. I know a lot of people that have been victims of theft over the years. Uh, People that get their car stolen, get material robbed from their car. And they always are are, are pretty bummed, understandably, that they just were victimized. And I've had my car stolen, not my vehicle stolen, but things in my car. Somebody smashed my window, stole my GPS one time. Another time, somebody smashed my car window and... And uh, they stole a bunch of things that I had in the car, including some very high-end video equipment. This is many years ago. And you do feel so violated when you're robbed like this. And I have known people that exaggerate the value of the things that are stolen because they feel... I, I can't put myself in that frame of mind. But they feel as if they're owed something now either through the insurance or something else. Now, have you followed this story? And I am curious what you think of it. 800-848-WABC. Do you think he's intentionally lying about the value of this watch? Because, look, $45,000 is an expensive watch, but $45,000 is not $800,000. And the fact that he wouldn't tell the New York Post that exactly what type of watch it was, it leads me to think that he's not telling the truth. Additionally, the fact that last year he was misappropriating a paycheck protection loan to his company 
for personal expenses. That, to me, does reflect on his credibility. This, to me, does look like a guy that plays fast and loose with the facts. What do you think? What do you make of this? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. He agreed last year to pay the federal government $287,000 for allegedly diverting $98,000 of the funds to pay for personal, non-company-related expenses. And since then, his company has filed for bankruptcy. What do you make of this? Have you known people that have done this, that have been robbed and then they've exaggerated the value of what was stolen in order to get money from insurance? Or do you think maybe he's telling the truth here? Do you think Spain has an interest in not being publicly embarrassed in this international crime story, not looking like they're old, not looking like they are having $800,000 watches stolen in the midst of a high tourist area. Because, look, if people think that they're going to be robbed in a high tourist area like this, maybe they won't go there. Maybe it'll affect tourism. So who do you believe, the Barcelona police or Seth Bernstein? 800-848-WABC. And uh, do you feel, as I do, that the fact that he was misappropriating COVID money last year affects his credibility on this one? 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up in about 15, 20 minutes. We're going to talk with the the great-granddaughter, excuse me, of Buster Keaton. Her name is Keaton Talmadge. She's an actor and a voiceover artist in her own right. And uh, we are going to delve into why there has been this sudden resurgence in all things Buster Keaton. The guy was making movies 100 years ago. Why all of a sudden are we talking about Buster Keaton again? Books are being released. Movies are being released. They're doing segments on uh, CBS Sunday morning. What is it about Buster Keaton? We're going to get into that with her, uh, and we'll find out what she's up to. Before I get to your calls on the watch situation, and there's one, two, three, four, five open lines if you want to comment, I have to bring this up. You know, so we've been talking a little bit about the World Cup, and there is going to be some World Cup games coming to New Jersey, and uh, they're saying this could mean a lot of economic activity for both New York and New Jersey. Uh, This is not something I get too excited about, but if it's good for New York and New Jersey, then I'm all for it. Could be an exciting experience for a lot of sports fans. I think it's more power to you. Congratulations, New York and New Jersey. I'm glad we got some uh, some places. Now, there evidently is going to be some World Cup games in Qatar, a.k.a. Qatar. I like Qatar. I'm sticking with Qatar. I know they some people like Qatar. I'm sticking with Qatar. This is a story from the Daily Star. There is a lot of unease about the um, new rule that Qatar appears to be enforcing. There is a... Now, Qatar is an oppressive, backwards, theocratic country. They're a minor league version of Saudi Arabia. And they have a ban already on premarital sex. Well, they are making sure everyone knows that there's going to be a World Cup sex ban effectively in place during the tournament in Qatar. And if you're caught frolicking with anyone other than your spouse during the World Cup, 
you will face a seven-year prison terms. Prison term. So if you're thinking about a drunken hookup at the World Cup tournament in Qatar, which starts in November, um, you better think again. But a police source told the Daily Star, sex is very much off the menu unless you are coming as a husband and wife team. There definitely will be no one-night stands at this tournament. There will be no partying at, partying at all, really. Everyone needs to keep their heads about them unless they want to risk being stuck in prison. This is a, There is essentially a sex ban in place at this year's World Cup for the first time ever. Fans need to be prepared. FIFA, that's the entity that runs the World Cup, they have said all are welcome at the tournament, but there's a growing concern that that's not the case. There are already reports of fans with different surnames being stopped from booking and sharing hotel rooms. This police insider told the Daily Star, the drink and party culture after games, which is the norm in most places, is strictly prohibited with very strict and scary consequences if you're caught. There's a feeling this could be a very bad tournament indeed for fans. I I should say so. Sounds pretty lame. So uh, your thoughts, your questions, your comments, your analysis of this stolen watch inflation in Spain and this six, seven-year prison sentence if you're caught having sex as an unmarried person in Qatar for the World Cup. 800-848-9222. That's one 800 Eight four eight WABC. Keaton Talmadge joining me in about uh, in about ten minutes. Let me begin with Michael here in Manhattan. Hello there, Michael. Okay, a couple of things. You made some offhand remarks about that watch. Number one. Number two. Let's think straight in the line, uh, sir. Please show me your insurance documents for this watch. Also, show me the receipt for the watch. Um, this guy is full of crap. I tend to agree with you. I mean, but why would he make that up? Do you think it's, it's an insurance scam or it's for attention? <laughs> uh, it's, it's attention, and I think he has a deficit disorder. When I say a deficit, I mean he ain't got too much money in his bank account. But another thing, that Burns guy cannot speak Hebrew. He is a fraud. There were never any Dead Sea Scrolls thrown out. And the Dead Sea Scrolls actually verify passages from the Bible. Well, I'm not going to comment on the Hebrew aspect. My Hebrew is non-existent, so uh, I'll defer to you on that one, uh, Michael. But uh, Bill Burns is a smart guy. He has written multiple New York Times bestsellers. The guy is a Ph.D. The guy is an elected official. The guy has a law degree. I mean, he's a pretty credible guy. So I'm not sure any metric that you use, he's got credibility in my view. If you want to use advanced degrees, check. If you want to use elected official, check. You want to use New York Times bestselling author, a published author, check. You know, I mean, but whatever. People don't have to believe it. It's, you know, it's a free country. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, good morning, Frank. Listen, to go back to the World Cup, um, FIFA is a noted 
uh, has been noted for corruption and just taking money from anybody that will give it to them, oftentimes in these World Cup selections. The fact that they even considered Qatar, which is a backwards nation when it comes to civil rights for people and for basically not progressive living, but modern living. It just goes to show how dirty and corrupt FIFA is. I agree with you. I agree with you. And look, uh, if Qatar had no money, nobody would be even talking about having a soccer game there, let alone something as uh, prestigious as the World Cup tournament. Uh, Basically, Qatar is doing with FIFA what they do on the world stage all over the place, which is they're buying credibility. I agree with you completely. Last year, last time it was in Brazil. How can you go in four years from the lifestyle of Brazil to the lifestyle of Qatar? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a good point. It's certainly a different, uh, it's a different culture, that's for sure. And just to be clear, the games are not all going to be in Qatar, but some of the games are going to be in Qatar. Some of the games are going to be here in the United States. It's an international tournament, and it's going to have, it's going to happen in a lot of different cities. But that's a fair point. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. <laughs> Good morning, Frank. Good morning. I wasn't sure. If, I wasn't sure if I got the question right or whether people are wearing watches anymore or not. First of all, I think that guy was lying. The fact that right off the bat, you won't tell him what kind of watch—that's insane. Of course, how can they figure out what the price is if you don't know what kind of watch it is? <clears throat> but uh, is the question whether or not you wear watches anymore and why? I thought that's what it was. No, I mean I don't know. It's uh, I mean we're just talking about the watch story and you know led led down to a watch discussion. Is there anything you want to add to it, Rick? Well, <clears throat> watches went out of style for um, telling time. But now watches are not just used for uh, time. They're actually used for watching, like Apple Watch. Right. That's, Watch. What, uh, that's what Ryan mentioned. Um, oh, did he? I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. No, that's okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I wear one for, uh, that's Bluetooth so I can talk on my phone. When you're walking in in inclement weather with a long coat on or something, getting digging in for your phone and all that. Now you just raise your wrist going, I'm, I'm on my way to work. I'll call you later. Okay, okay. You can talk through your watch, you know. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. I, that's a fair point. I, 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 I know a lot of people do that. It's very Dick Tracy-ish. You can just talk right into your uh, into your wristwatch just like Dick Tracy. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank. Uh, you know, same thing as that other caller that was calling about FIFA and how corrupt they are. You know, put aside the whole human rights thing, which is horrible. They shouldn't have got it just for that alone. But it's the first time ever that a country's getting the World Cup. It doesn't even have a domestic league. Is that and right? Have a, yes. I didn't know that. don't even have a single soccer stadium. They had to actually build every single soccer stadium. So how in the world did they get the World Cup? It's obvious that FIFA just got paid off. It's just a corrupt organization, the most corrupt in sports, period. That's wild. And it's supposed to be played in the summer. They actually had to push it to November because the average temperature in the summer is something like 115 degrees during the day. And every stadium has to be indoors. They had to build stadium, indoor stadiums because of the air conditioning. You need the air conditioning. So they had to, you know, they have natural grass, but they have like these indoor, outdoor stadiums where they like, you know, they bring the grass in or whatever. So it, the whole whole entire thing was corrupt. Yeah. Whole, uh, no, it yeah. certainly seems that way. Kevin, thanks for the call. Buster Keaton is having a moment right now. There's been a resurgence of interest in the legendary silent film star. We'll talk about it with his great-granddaughter straight ahead. WABC. 
It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. accompaniment to a ukulele uh, by someone that is probably uh, best known by cinematic historians and film buffs for being silent. Uh, That is, of course, the great Buster Keaton. We've been talking about uh, Buster Keaton a lot on this show lately. He seems to be having uh, quite a moment. There's two new books out about him. There's a film that's coming out about him. And there seems to be this uh, tremendous resurgence of interest in Buster Keaton and some of his films, even the ones that came out a century ago. And if you watch a lot of these films these days, you can see how often they've been uh, the inspiration for a lot of other films that are still coming out these days. Now, someone who is anything but silent is Keaton Talmadge. She is a trained actor and singer and the great-granddaughter of legendary silent film star Buster Keaton, and she's kind enough to join us on the radio. Keaton, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Your aunt was uh, was Buster's uh, granddaughter. So who, who are your parents? So my dad is... Uh... Um, so how it goes in, in my lineage is Buster's first son, James, is my grandpa, and uh, they had four kids, and one of those is my dad, Michael Talmadge, and so my aunt is Melissa Talmadge Cox, and she does a lot of Buster Keaton events, and she's uh, one of our family's, you know, spokespeople, I guess, that kind of represent the family at, at various events around the, around the, the country. Uh, she's sort of taken it upon herself to be one of the uh, keepers of Buster's legacy. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. She she knew him. Um, you know, they, they all went over to his place when they were younger. And um, she has uh, quite a few of his uh, things. Um, she has hats and, and uh, a bunch of memorabilia that she keeps safe. And she brings to certain events um, for people to see. And, um, yeah. Now, the Talmadge family was a pretty legendary show business family as well. I know when Buster Keaton married Natalie Talmadge, that was his leading lady in the film Our Hospitality. And she also came from Mm -hmm. a pretty accomplished cinematic family, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The Talmadge sisters, Norma, Constance, and Natalie, um, were huge, huge silent film stars. Norma being probably the most famous. Um, she was, uh, the ingenue. She, uh, was probably the, one of the top leading ladies in the silent film era. Um, she, her, she was the first one to put her hands in footprints in Grauman's Chinese theater. Some fun trivia for you. Wow. I, I had no idea that that was the case. <laughs> in case that's ever asked on Jeopardy. And, uh, and then Constance was definitely the comedian. She, um, was also a very, very talented actress. Um, and Natalie, I didn't, I don't think she really wanted to be an actor. I don't think that that was kind of her ultimate desire, but because it was what the family did, 
Um, she kind of went along with it, but uh, her and Buster ended up meeting because she was doing bookkeeping. Um, and so they ended up meeting and then he put her in uh, some of his films and, and she kind of had her fame go that way. Uh, now that's uh, that's well. So I would be I would be correct in assuming that you never met either of those great grandparents, right? Either Buster or or Natalie. Correct. I never met them. Um, they passed before I was born. I did, however, meet Eleanor Keaton, who is Buster's third wife, and his probably the great great love of his life, who helped really transform and give him a third act that was tremendously happy. Um, and Eleanor was an absolute delight and she came to support me when I was studying acting in college and she came to see my plays and, um, was just a lovely, lovely woman. Uh, Did the fact that you were descended from somebody that was such a famous actor, did that inform your decision to pursue this as a career at all? You know, it, it didn't really, uh, I've wanted to be an actor my whole life. Um, and it was very natural for me to want to be on stage, um, from a very, very young age. Um, I would always stand in front of the TV and go, watch mommy, watch. And I would put on a show. Um, I was in choir and drama all through elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, so I, I, I really knew early on that this was something that I was meant to be doing. And because when I grew up, um, you know, prior to the internet, and there was a lot, most of the people my age didn't really know who Buster was. Mm. Um, they knew who Chaplin was, um, but they weren't really familiar with Buster, and so he wasn't talked about a ton. You know, we knew who he was in terms of oh, we have a famous silent comedian. He was quite famous in his day, but no one really talked about him much when I was growing up. So it wasn't like I was like, oh, I'm going to follow in his footsteps. Um, what I do remember have what I do remember happening, and what people would say is, whenever I would do um, a farce like Noises Off or something, or a, a sketch comedy show, and I would do a pratfall or something like that, people in my family would always comment that, oh, that was just like Buster, or oh, I see a little Buster in there. Um, people comment that I have his eyes well, a lot. I, uh, I, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> the, uh, you know, never having met you, but only seeing your, your photograph, that's what struck me. And that's uh, why <laughs> I, I would have guessed that you were actually a, a bit of a closer relation than a great-granddaughter because his eyes were sort of his trademark. And your eyes, uh, certainly in the photographs that I've seen of you, they certainly do uh, jump off the, ca- you know, jump off the camera, I guess is the best way to describe Describe it, but uh, it, it is interesting. I could certainly see that. I mentioned that uh, there's two books out now. There's a, a film that's in the works. Mm-hmm. It, it, this is all 66 years or so after he, or 56 years after he passed away. Why do you think that your great grandfather is having a moment now? What do you think's behind this resurgence? Um, I think that his films are more readily available. I think that more people are making compilations of his gags, his stunt work. And so you, you see these short form, you know, media compilations on Twitter and on YouTube and they're getting shared. And so more and more people are discovering him and the people that studied him that are inspired by him, the filmmakers 
they're commenting, they're sharing, they're, and so then people are like, oh, wait, who is this guy? Who is this inspiration? And then they want to go learn more. Mm. They want to go read the books. They want to go see more. And I think that some of the previous biographies might have been a little more dated. They maybe weren't as modern. Some of them took some liberties and in, in some of the, and some of the historians that I've met um, haven't loved a lot of the previous versions of, of biographies of him. And so I felt like um, the authors, you know, the two the books especially that are, are now out, I feel like they um, they saw that opening to tell more truthful versions and stories in a, to a more modern audience. I know that um, I, Buster's marriage to your uh, great grandmother was not necessarily a, a bed of roses, and uh, you know he struggled with a, a lot of uh, difficulties, professional difficulties, and some personal difficulties. So much so that um, you know she changed her children's name to Talmadge. Uh, I am curious mm-hmm. what you grew up knowing about your great grandfather as both a a person and a performer. Did your family family, um, you know, hold him in high esteem after he was gone, or was it a more of a mixed bag? Well, um, my grandpa, his son, um, didn't really speak of him. So he wasn't really discussed by my grandpa, um, because as talented as he was as a filmmaker and a, an actor and a comedian, um, he wasn't the most there father. Mm. Uh, he wasn't, you know, really there for the, for the kids. Um, a lot because he you know he he prized his work um a lot above above a lot of things and i, I think he tried to remedy that towards the end there and they and they had some reunions and and developed a little bit more of a relationship um once they were a bit older which uh which is nice so my grandpa didn't really talk about him my dad did and my dad talked about him with love and familiarity he would he would talk about how the train in Woodland Hills would come out to the backyard and the pool with food on it and snacks on it. And then the train would go back around and Buster was sitting in the kitchen, you know, programming the train to do different things and to delight the kids out in the yard. Um, and he taught my dad how to dive roll over coffee tables. And I, I think that it's uh, much like, um, you know, sometimes as a parent, um, and I know that even on my mom's side, she talks about this, you know, her dad being a little more strict with her. But then when the grandkids come along, mm. he was just a complete softy and uh, and loved spending time with us and would spend hours teaching us things. And so I think there was a little bit of that with Buster. Um, he was a, probably a stricter father and had pretty high expectations for his boys and then um, didn't see them as much because of his work and then because of the divorce um, as maybe, you know, he might have wanted to in a more ideal parenting world and then I think that that shifted when he had grandkids and then he was a little bit older and you know wanted to be there for them and, and delight them a bit no that's uh, certainly been the case with uh, uh, with a lot of the folks in my family where um, my I had a much better relationship with my grandfather than either my mother or uh, or her uncle did so that doesn't come as mm-hmm. uh, as a surprise if people are just tuning in we're talking with Keaton Talmadge she is a trained actor and singer and the great-granddaughter of uh, legendary <laughs> film star 
uh, Buster Keaton. You could check out her website at KeatonTalmage.com. There's some great samples of her work on there, and you could see her photograph, and you could see if you agree with my analysis of the similarity with the eyes. Uh, Keaton, I'm sure I'm not the only one to observe the irony of you making a living using your voice and sound, whereas your father first became a star in an era where uh, there were no voices in film. Exactly. Yeah, I I, uh, I say that I I like to say that I I've taken all the voices he never used, <laughs> and uh, and I use them now. <laughs> uh, tell folks what's the bulk of the work that you're doing? Is it mostly commercial work, or uh, do you do uh, do you do other things that people may recognize your voice from? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that you know probably seventy percent of the work that I do is commercial, um, and that's you know commercials that you're going to see on TV. And then uh, also corporate narration, um, you know, things that you'll see on YouTube. Um, I've done uh, textbooks for children um, as I'm a mom of two boys. So I've done children's books. I don't do a ton of audio books, but I do mostly short format commercial and then on radio. And then I, uh, I also do quite a bit of video games and quite a bit of uh, dubbing work. Um, so I'll voice over, you know, films that have been or TV shows that have been done in different languages. And then I'll be hired to voice a certain character uh, into English. Yeah, I saw that on your website, how much video game work that you're doing. I, I guess that makes sense. I just I didn't realize how much of a market there was for trained voiceover actors in the field of video games. You know, you think radio, you think uh, television and uh, maybe animated features and animated television. But I, I didn't realize, I mm-hmm. guess, that uh, that voiceover work is such an important part of video games these days. It's really transformed, I think, from, you know, video games that I grew up with, definitely. Um, there are many movies now uh, in, you know, in the midst of playing, there will be a full mini movie. Um, and one of the reasons I think that it was easy for me to transition into voiceover full time, which I did maybe, well, it's been about four or five years now, um, is because I came with a bunch of acting training. And I think some people start voiceover thinking, oh, you just have to have a good voice. And it's going to be a really hard go unless you do some acting training. Because if you mm. don't know who you're talking to and why, and why you're saying the things you're saying, even a, a commercial is going to sound ingenuine these days, especially. They want something that sounds like an authentic human being with an opinion. How much uh, of your great-grandfather's work have you gotten to see? Are, are you a, a Buster Keaton film expert or a, a casual viewer, or have you never seen anything? Well, I'm definitely, I'm definitely not an expert. There are people out there that I am in awe of how well they know and study uh, his body of work. Um, but I have seen, I have seen everything he's done at least once, and I've seen certain things multiple times. Um, especially starting about a year ago, we started to have Buster Sundays at my house, and so my kids get to pick out a Buster, either a short film or a feature that they want to watch. And so we have Buster Sundays. And so I'm introducing the next generation to him as well. And it's really fun, much like you were saying earlier, how he's kind of timeless in this way because of the silent aspect of it. It's still funny. It's, mm. I mean, they, they crack up and, you know, and it's, uh, it's still just as funny now as it was 100 years ago. Oh, how old are your children? They are 
8 and 11. Oh, and so which of his films really resonates with them? If folks are looking to show a Buster Keaton film to uh, to a child. See, my son's only uh, six and a half months, so he doesn't have much of a choice. When, 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 we, when we watched The General a couple of weeks ago, I think he just re- you know reacted. He liked that train scene, but he didn't really follow uh-huh. much of what was going on. <laughs> Which, what are your kids like? Um, they, they love, uh, one week is one of their favorites. Um, it's just, it's to see the house built together in such a haphazard manner. And it's, it's very much like a cartoon and how a cartoon character would build a house completely wrong, but it's, it's almost funnier because it's, it's real life. They're, they're looking at these, this house and, and they can't believe that he's actually standing in front of it and it exists. It's not a drawn cartoon. <laughs> um, and that it turns and all of the fun stunts that he did with that, um, they, they, they crack up at that one. They're a big fan. They love Steamboat Bill Jr., um, which is my favorite feature um, because mostly because of the last, that, that last hurricane scene where it's just a whirlwind, literally, of stunt after stunt after stunt. And you, you just, you're in awe the whole time. How is he doing this? <laughs> the, the, so those are, those are two of their favorites, but they also, they love the scarecrow. They love the goat. Um, they love neighbors. They thought neighbors was hysterical. So there's, yeah, there's lots, mostly the short films. They, they really love the short films at this age. I think it's kind of the perfect length for their attention span. So you think his work holds up pretty well for modern audiences? I do. I, there's certain, there's certain ones that, um, that you have to have a conversation. I mean, especially to, to young children about, um, that, that were things that were done that were okay back in the era that are not okay now, culturally, uh, societally. And so it's a, it's a conversation starter. Um, you know, the pale face is an example. You know, we had to have conversations with our kids about, how that's not culturally appropriate now. Um, but it, it helps open the conversation for them. And, you know, everything is a good conversation to for them to move forward, you know. You know, there were some stars and some people have even said your great-grandmother fell into this category who weren't really able to successfully make the transition to talking pictures after achieving a lot of acclaim in silent pictures. And then there were other stars that were able to make that uh, transition. Uh, Buster Keaton seemed to have a little bit of difficulty initially, but then he enjoyed Mm -hmm. a really great second act, not only in cinema, but uh, on television. I think the episode that he's in of The Twilight Zone is still really probably the funniest Twilight Zone episode there is. It's still played to this day. What what do you think it is about Buster that enabled him to be able to uh, basically master a whole different genre of entertainment, whereas so many other stars of his era weren't able to do that? Um, you know, I, I think that it's his his dedication to his craft, first of all. He he learned what worked from, I mean, a, a comedy gag is a comedy gag, right? And whether mm. you do it in a short film or whether you do it on TV, it can still be just as funny in terms, he was a master at how things were shot, how to, where to place the camera in order for the viewer to get the most impact from the gag. And so I think that that passion, that knowledge helped to translate to TV very well. Um, and, you know, I, I think that especially in that era when, you know, it was 
TV was really starting to come up, it, it you know, he, he started to, I think he just recognized the similarities and then he never stopped learning and, and trying to be better. He just never wanted to ever stop making mm. gags and, and doing what he loved to do. He would have never wanted to retire. Mm. No, that's uh, well said. What, was he friends with uh, Harry Houdini? So Harry Houdini was on the same vaudeville circuit that his family was on when he was young. They toured the same circuit. So he would get to, you know, he would watch Harry's act when he was a young boy from like up in the rafters of the theater hall that they were performing in that night, you know, and he would try to watch from different angles to see how, how if, you know, he could figure out how Harry did it. <laughs> so he was a family friend. Um, Sylvester was young. Um, and I think, you know, he, they knew each other just being traveling in the vaudeville mm. circuit together. So he was definitely over at their house and, you know, his parents hung out with him, I think. And he knew him. Because the bulk of Buster's work was, uh, you know, 90 or 100 years ago, do you find that you've been able to avoid maybe unfair expectations of you, uh, expectations that uh, if if your father or or grandfather was a huge star instead of, um, you know, a, your great-grandfather, that there'd be all these unfair burdens of expectations of you should be able to do this and you should be able to do that, do your own stunts while filming them, making mm-hmm. everybody laugh <laughs> without ever cracking a smile? Or have you had to... B- be burdened with kind of the expectation of, oh, this is Buster Keaton's uh, great-granddaughter. She better make us laugh within eight seconds without saying anything. <laughs> um, it's a good question. Um, it, I, I, say, I say that it, it had to skip a couple generations um, in order for the family to support, want to support an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, my, my grandpa... Um, you know, they, they, he wanted nothing to do with the industry because he saw what the industry did to his, to his parents and his aunts and uncles, um, his aunts. Um, and then uh, the next, you know, his kids, they didn't support one of my uncles, my dad's brother, um, was, would have been a really great character actor, but they just didn't support it. They were like, you don't want to go into that career. It's, it's going to just lead to, to alcoholism it's going to lead to drugs it's going to lead you're going to be unhappy it's it's terrible you you need to go into something more stable because they saw the more personal side of it rather than the creative passionate side of it and again once the grandkids came along um and i and showed interest in acting very very young they were like oh yay we have an actor in the family (laughs) she's following in his footsteps so they were very supportive of me (laughs) And uh, came to all my shows, and and it was more of um a, like you know a celebration that there was an actor in the family. I they never put any pressure on me, um and it was more of like oh look she you know tumbled just like Buster would have type of a thing, um so yeah not a, not a ton of pressure. Well that that's that's uh, pretty neat. We're talking with Keaton Talmadge. You can check out her website keatontalmadge dot com. You can see some samples of the terrific voiceover work that she's done and uh, a bunch of other stuff as well. Uh, it's all on the uh, on the website. Keaton, I am curious. Do you have any predictions? It seems like every every so often there's a a, a research. You know the old expression, and I guess like a lot of cliches, it happens to be true. Everything old is new again. It seems like there's always these mm-hmm. resurgence in 
in uh, old-time media, old-time uh, film or television stars, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, Bing Crosby or Bob Hope or Frank Sinatra or mm-hmm. uh, going back to Chaplin or Buster Keaton. Any predictions as to who the next uh, star of the 20s, 30s, or what the next uh, f- entertainment venue of yesteryear will be to get a resurgence in the 21st century? Um, you know, it's a good question. I, you know, it might be like, um, you know, Stan and Laurel or, um, you know, I mean, the Marx Brothers, they get theirs every now and then. Um, I think uh, Harold Lloyd might get one. Mm. You know, um, he was sort of of the three major silent stars, um, Chaplin, Keaton and Lloyd. You know, he's another one that some people maybe haven't seen his films, um, but he was fantastic, you know, just just like the other two. And so there might be there might be something on him that, that comes up, um, especially if, um, you know, the, the biopic that uh, is projected to happen um, for Buster happens, then there might be just more of a resurgence in, in the silent film era in general. By the way, do you, do you have any idea of what the timetable is for that uh, for that silent for that uh, biopic about uh, Buster Keaton? No idea. No idea. See, we we don't have any uh, as a fa- as a family. We don't own any of his of his rights because he sold it to MGM, mm. which he considers his biggest mistake. Um, so we we support as just the love of him and his family, but we don't have really any of control of any of his films or anything wow. that he you know anything about him. Wow, um, Keaton, it has been a real treat to talk with you. Please keep us posted on what you're up to, and I appreciate you uh, letting us stroll down memory lane with you and uh, giving us a little insight into a tremendous piece of Hollywood history and to your own family's history. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Uh, Keaton Talmadge, actor, singer, and the great granddaughter of a legendary film star, Buster Keaton. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. When whippoorwills call and evening is nigh, I hurry to my, my blue heaven. But turn to the right, a little white light will lead you to my blue heaven. You'll see a smiling face, a fireplace, a cozy room, a little nest that's nestled where the roses bloom. Just Molly and the great Frank Sinatra singing My Blue Heaven. If you're a Sinatra fan, you will uh, definitely want to listen to the uh, Sundays with Sinatra program on um, Sunday nights that uh, my friend and colleague Joe Piscopo does. Nobody knows more about Sinatra than he does. Nobody is more of an authority on Sinatra and sings the music of Sinatra better than 
He does. He is a uh, a gem. And uh, you could check out that show every Sunday night from 6 until 8 p.m. Uh, I listen oftentimes as I'm uh, setting down for my 7 p.m. nap. Sometimes if I'm coming in early, I will uh, listen on my way in. Great show. Uh, and obviously there's nobody that does it better than Frank Sinatra. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Chris is in Glen Cove. Hello, Chris. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Listen, one movie I really loved that came out, but I never did anything in the theaters, was uh, John C. Riley and the actor Stephen Corgan, uh, the English actor. They made a movie about Stan and Ollie about their lives. Uh, I, you know, I didn't. I, I that's in my queue from Netflix. I haven't seen it yet. Is, is it worth seeing? It's very. Un, I feel it's very, very underrated. It shows their personal lives, how Hollywood was screwing them around. You know, it's very, very good. Talked about uh, 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 Stan's health issues. It's just a very, very good movie. There's two very good actors. I didn't even know it was John C. Riley. He has so much makeup on him, you wouldn't recognize him that he played uh, Stan. Really? I'll have to check it out. I haven't, um, I, again, I, I, like I said, I, I don't get to see as many films these days as I would like because I'm busy not only with this show, but uh, preparing for the show and then, uh, you know, helping with my son and everything. But uh, it's in my queue from Netflix. I have 25 movies before it, but it will eventually make its way to my house. And it was already something that I wanted to see, so I will definitely check it out. Please, it's very, very good. It's mostly filmed in Europe. You know, it just it, it it takes it takes about their lives about like in the nineteen fifties when things start to fizzle out for them. But Interesting. It was very, very, very good uh, movie about uh, about their lives. Interesting. I will definitely check it out, Chris. Thank you for the call. I'll tell you. I think I might have to find a different barber. Let me read you now. Uh, my friend Vinny. He has a daughter, Lena, Lena, who is obsessed with my son. She's in love with my son, and she's a big help. She loves to come over and spend spend time with him, and uh, she looks after him and everything. And it's nice if I ever need to take a nap or something, she will uh, look after him, and, and, and she's great. But Vinny came over. Vinny and I are very tight, so a lot of times he and I will hang out. We'll get a glass of wine or something, and then Lena will hang out with my wife and, and Carmine. And... Oh, recently, it was a Saturday or so, Vinny said, all right, I'm going to leave Lena here and I'm going to go around the corner and get a haircut. I'll be back in an hour, maybe an hour and a half, if that. And then Rachel says to him, well, what do you mean? You can just go in without an appointment and they'll give you a haircut? He says, yeah, there's two guys there. They both do a great job. I'm going to go in there and um, get a haircut. And Rachel says to me, Frank, you need to go there. You're always jumping through hoops to arrange your schedule around when your barber can see you. And, and again, this is not my view, it's hers. He only does a mediocre job with your haircut. You're not getting a super complicated haircut. You're getting it trimmed a little bit. Anybody could do that. And I said, no, you know, it was not an easy decision for me to abandon my longtime Manhattan bartender and go to this guy. It was very difficult. So I, I really, you know, I'm sticking with him. Let me read you this SMS text message exchange. I text him Sunday night at 11 p.m. And I said, hi, Lou. I was wondering if you had any openings this week before 930 in the morning. I'm thinking I could do it when I get first get back home or after 230 p.m. Or thinking I could do it when I wake up. 
And I'd like to get it this week because I'm supposed to be at a wedding Saturday, and I'm marrying the couple. I am a an ordained minister in the Universal Life Church, so I'm going to perform the service. Looking forward to that. And I am going to be in a lot of photographs. So I'd like to have a haircut so I don't look like Bigfoot. So he gets back to me yesterday morning at 9.55. Says, happy first Father's Day. He's a great guy, by the way. I can't stress this enough. I have 3.30 on Tuesday the 21st or 8 a.m. on Wednesday the 22nd. So I get back to him later in the afternoon when I wake up. I said, thank you. I'll take the 8 a.m. on Wednesday if possible. He says, no longer available, buddy. I'm sorry. I have 8.30 a.m. Wednesday if that works. I'm sorry. This is a subsequent text. I'm sorry. I meant Thursday, 8.30 Thursday morning. So now I, I went and booked it so that I don't lose my opportunity to get my haircut. But I'm wondering what is going on at this barbershop. It's always busy in there. I mean, he does a good job, but, you know, at a decent price. But it's not a great job at an amazing price. I don't know what the story is here. Why everybody else is able to get haircuts, no problem. I have to make appointments and go on waiting lists and then if I don't respond quickly enough, forget about it. I, I, I gotta, I'm out of luck. So I don't know. I am um, reconsidering my haircut options. Again, I'm a loyal guy. I hate to abandon this fellow. But I see the ease in which friends of mine are able to get haircuts in the same neighborhood. And I'm wondering if maybe I made a mistake here. Or maybe the th- good things in life are worth being a little inconvenienced for. I don't know. 800-848-WABC. Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, hiya, Frank. Hey, I, I used to look at the old Gary Moore variety show, mm. and there was a segment of his uh, program uh, where he would dress up like Buster Keaton a little bit. I didn't know that. Hat. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, well, I, I, in other words, I've seen Buster Keaton in like uh, some film uh, th- and uh, the way he dressed I never forgot how he dressed with a particular hat yeah the pork pie hat yeah well whatever that was but uh, he dressed up there and I and by thinking it was Buster Keaton he was dressed as he must have idolized Buster Keaton yeah, I got to yeah. say, Tom, I haven't seen much of that. Uh, I'm familiar with Gary Moore as a personality, but I haven't seen much of the Gary Moore uh, variety show. I'll try and see if I could pull up some old clips of that on the YouTube, uh, because uh, it sounds like it's up my alley, too. Yeah. Well, anyway, you may you may like that, but that's all I can say. I may indeed. You never know. Uh, you yeah. never know, Tom. Thank you. Hey, um, if you want to call in on anything we've covered thus far, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, we're sticking around until 5 a.m. this morning where you get to hear the WABC early news. And then um, D- Bernie and the Bernie and Sid show starts from 6 until 10. And I was just informed that Sid is going to be out today. You know who is filling in for Sid Rosenberg today? Just got the word seconds ago. John Katzmatidis. John uh, just SMS text messaged me. He said he's going to be here by 630. And um, he is uh, going to be filling in for Sid Rosenberg. Evidently, Sid is off for his daughter's graduation. So that's nice. I know how close he is to his daughter. And uh, I've met her. She's a lovely young woman. And uh, congratulations to the whole Rosenberg family. So uh, you can stay tuned and hear Bernie 
and John Katsimatidis from 6 until 10. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I, uh, by popular demand, I did post in the Facebook group the uh, T-shirt that uh, my wife had gotten my son and me for Father's Day. Uh, I posted it in response to an Ellen Metzger inquiry. Uh, the Facebook group is facebook.com/groups/radio/morano, or if you just go on Facebook, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Ellen asked me to post the picture of uh, Carmine and me wearing, my son is only seven months old, wearing the shirt that he got me for Father's Day, which is basically a pizza pie with one slice missing, and then he has a small shirt that just has the one slice on it. It's really, it's kind of cute. So if you want to see that photo, you can jump on there. But um, my wife and I had some guests over, uh, friends of hers that she grew up with, the the one one friend that she grew up with and then her husband rich and their children they all came over they're passing through and they were uh passing through Staten Island as they drove from Cape May New Jersey where he was stationed in the coast guard to eastern long island where my friend uh where where her her family is from and they're heading down to florida because he's being uh he's being moved down there he's going to be stationed in florida for a few years it's a great couple we had a great time with them, but we ordered pizza, and it, and it lends itself to a whole pizza discussion. And we had some vodka pizza, and they got some plain pizza for the kids from a great establishment right near our house that I just love called Campania. It's a great, great establishment, really great coal-fired pizza. If you prefer coal-fired pizza as opposed to brick oven or wood fire oven pizza or an electric oven, you got to try Campania. It's great. Um, so... We ended up discussing pizza yesterday. Sunday, Father's Day, we go to my dad's. And I'm wearing a pizza shirt. Carmine's wearing a pizza shirt. And everyone except my wife, my stepmother, my sister-in-law, and my brother Alexander's girlfriend is at least part Italian, part of Italian descent. I don't even like to say that because I'm of the belief that we're here, we're all American, right? But uh, my father... Carmine Morano, he's completely of Italian lineage. My, uh, I am also sim- completely of Italian ancestry. My three siblings, they're half Italian, half Irish. So Rachel, my wife, who I love and adore, proceeds to begin a lecture 
on a subject that I have had way too many conversations with her on. And that subject is, what is pizza? Now, you know what kind of pizza I like? Every type of pizza. As you can probably divine from my less than impressive physique, I like every type of pizza. I like New York style pizza. I like Sicilian. I like New Haven, Connecticut style pizza. I like thin crust. I like thick crust. I like white. I like vodka sauce. You name it. I mean, I am a pizza enthusiast. And, uh, you know, I get almost upset when people ask me what my favorite pizza shop is in New York because I can't answer it. Because it all depends on what kind of pizza you're looking for. If you want to know the best clam pie, well, that's easy. You go to Lee's Tavern. If you want to know the um, the best vodka pie, that's easy. You go to Goodfellas. If you want to know um, the best, uh, you know, the best, uh, you know, Sicilian or tomato pie style, you go to L&B Spumoni Gardens. It's just it's the best pizza for what you're looking for. So. I love white pizza. Absolutely love. Rachel, and this is a debate that we have had countless numbers of times in the five years. No, in the three years that we've been married, we must have discussed this 50, 60 times. And the last 20 or 30, I've stopped arguing because I recognize she's never going to see things my way. But I'm just curious if you see things her way. Rachel is of the belief that in order for something to be pizza, it requires three ingredients. Cheese, sauce, and bread, basically a crust. That without those three ingredients, something cannot be considered pizza. She, I said, well, so what does that mean? You don't consider a white pie pizza? Nope. Clam pie. You don't consider a clam pie pizza? Nope. And this leads to a whole discussion in my dad's backyard on Sunday about what is pizza. And that might be a little existential for this time of the morning. And it might be a little too similar to the questions that the Google chat bot is asking about itself. But I'm wondering what you think. Is she on to something? My answer is no. Because then, sort of to settle this, my stepmother went on to her smartphone and she starts Googling. And then there were several definitions of pizza that said it had to have sauce. So if you look up pizza, the first, if you Google pizza, this is what it says. This is the first thing that comes up in sort of the Google info box. Pizza is a dish of Italian origin, okay, consisting of a usually round flat base of leavened wheat-based dough topped with tomatoes, cheese, and often various other ingredients, which is then baked at a high temperature. So at that point, when my stepmother reads that description, when she gets to tomatoes, Rachel just says, aha! Tomatoes. That means if it doesn't have tomatoes or a tomato sauce, it's not pizza. Now, I found some other descriptions of pizza online that omit 
either tomatoes or, or sauce. And she didn't want to hear it. Then um, you go on dictionary.com. This is what it says. Uh, a dish of Italian origin consisting of a flat, round base of dough baked with a topping of tomato sauce and cheese, typically with added meat or vegetables. And Rachel is just kind of patting herself on the back. And again, she is part Irish, part Russian, uh, part German, no part Italian. And she is convinced that her definition of pizza is the correct one. And apparently she's backed up by Merriam-Webster Dictionary. She's backed up by Dictionary.com. She's backed up by Wikipedia. And then I found another description that omitted tomatoes. Um, Because if you go to, I think it was, um, I, I don't remember where, but it said that pizza is a dish of Italian origin made with an oven-baked, flat, round bread, then um, I took issue with that as well. Because I think a square pie, like a Detroit-style pie, or a Sicilian-style pie, I think that's pizza. So I said, look, I'm clearly not going to win this argument. I'm not going to win it on the Internet. But... My definition of pizza is very similar to what the Supreme Court's definition of pornography is, which is we know it when we see it. My question for you is, what is pizza? What makes a pizza a pizza? Do you agree with Rachel that it's got to have those three essential ingredients, dough, sauce, and cheese? Do you agree with the powers that be on the Internet that says pizza has to be round? That is the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. 1-800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 uh, I did want to mention a story that uh, that I had been following that we'd been talking about for a while, which is uh, the abandonment of Russia by the McDonald's Corporation. You remember we covered this at the time. U.S. fast food giant McDonald's announced in May that it would leave Russia following the invasion of Ukraine. So uh, now on Sunday... McDonald's restaurants in Russia all reopened their doors once again under new Russian ownership and a new name, uh, Vakusno Atachka, which translates as tasty and that's it. So the famous golden arches have been taken down and replaced with a new logo resembling the letter M and comprised of symbols that represent two fries and a hamburger against a green background. So Chief Executive Oleg Peryov, McDonald's former Russian head, said the new company had settled on the new name, which was a closely guarded secret, only the day before Sunday's launch. There was some speculation on social media about how best to translate the new name into English. Tasty, and that's it, was broadly adopted, although another suggestion was tasty, full stop, or period. So... um, Vakashna Etachka has reopened on Sunday 
in Moscow in this very same location in what was McDonald's first restaurant in Soviet Moscow 32 years ago when it sold as many as 30,000 burgers back in 1990. But the queue outside the restaurant was much smaller than it was three decades ago. The chain is keeping McDonald's interior, but it's removing any trace of its former name. To me, it looks like this place is exactly like McDonald's. It looks like they're offering the exact same type of food. It looks like it's going to be run in exactly the same manner. And to me, from what I can tell, this is very similar to the film Coming to America, where uh, John Amos's character is operating McDowell's, which is a restaurant that's McDonald's in all but name. So there you go. I, I don't know what it means, but it is interesting. I did come across this uh, this article in the New York Times. Um, I just got around to reading it today, but it was from back in April. And it was all about how all of a sudden this war in Russia became popular. How initially there used to be in Russia a lot more opposition to this Russian invasion of Ukraine. But what happened was... Once the United States started implementing all these sanctions against the Russians and all these Western companies leaving airspace closures, visa restrictions and the departure of popular companies like McDonald's and Ikea, that fed into the narrative that the Kremlin was telling its people that the West was waging an economic war on the Russian people. I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. Uh, sanctions almost never work. These don't work in getting countries to change their behavior. The only thing this does is punish the individual citizens. That's the only thing that these sanctions do. And the only thing it does is it feeds into the narrative that Putin, or if we're talking about other countries, other world leaders are feeding their country about the great beast that is the United States. So I do think if Putin's goal in invading Ukraine was to stop NATO expansion, then his goal failed because now we see Sweden and Finland wanting to join NATO. But if our goal in the United States is to make sure people can't eat McDonald's hamburgers and to get the Russian government to change its behavior through these sanctions, our goal has failed. So I just hope the next time some politician wants to score points by saying, yeah, we need more sanctions on XYZ bad guy. Just remember what's happened in Russia here. Our sanctions have taken a war that was marginally popular in Russia, and we have now made it incredibly popular in Russia. So just remember that that the next time some politician or some media pundit that doesn't know that who's who to to paraphrase Pat Buchanan's line at the 1992 Republican convention, whose foreign policy experience is limited to eating at the International House of Pancakes. Keep that in mind the next time they say sanctions, 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 sanctions don't work. If we want countries to like America, one of the great things that we can do is export Americanism. But So far, I've gotten no answers on my uh, pizza problem. 800-848-9222. What makes something pizza? Does it have to be round? Does it have to have tomatoes? 
Does it have to have sauce? 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. You can comment on other issues if you want as well. Ray is in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. How you doing, Frank? Uh, happy belated uh, Father's Day to you. Um, Thank you. A couple of things. You had, you, had a, you had a Freudian slip when you were talking about leaving your first uh, barber. You called him a bartender. You know, it's funny. I, I just got an email from somebody that said that same thing. I guess you could tell where my head is at. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you did mention having wine with your friend there. So, you know, there, there you go. Right. Um, Rachel's right about the... Uh, the going to the other barber because Jesus, like it's like booking a flight, You're trying to get a, a, a appointment with your barber. It's worse. With your bar- it's worse <laughs> with your barber. <laughs> I hate to let him go. You know, I you know I hate to you know he is a nice guy and he does do a good job and he, he does have a lot of experience. So I hate to let him go, but I think I might have to. Yeah, I'm telling you. Um, real quick, who's the guy in um, Spain? What's his first name? The, the guy with the watch. Uh, Seth. Seth. Seth Bernstein, I Seth, believe. Is I will. Seth. Seth needs to go to Qatar and wear his eight hundred thousand dollar watch and look for sex during the World Cup. That's what I think. We should go on there because they're they're they're, they're all full of it, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, that's, anyway, that's very right, funny. I'll let you go, and uh, great show, Frank. Hey, uh, Ray, are you weighing in on the definition of pizza? What makes something pizza? Uh, pizza's it's delicious. I love all kinds. Square, round, you know, uh, you know, whatever. Cheese, dough, throw it all in there. I like all kinds like you. you know, but I, does I it have to be, oven, does it have to have tomato okay. sauce? Does it have to have tomatoes or uh, tomato uh, sauce? I would think so, yes. I would say yes. All right, so you're siding with uh, with my wife on that one. All right, thank you. 800-848-WABC. Where do you come down on on the pizza problem? 800-848-9222. Uh, Matt Blaze, do you have an opinion on this? Yeah, I think it's absolutely silly that you have to go to the dictionary to look up the definition of pizza. So what is it? It's what you said. It, it, you know it when you see it. I mean, I love a white pizza. Now, if you want to go and get technical about pizza and say it has to have sauce. No, it doesn't have to have sauce because a a white pizza is a pizza. What is it? Or you say it's an open sandwich. Well, it's a flatbread. If it doesn't have sauce, Rachel claims it's a flatbread. It's just a flatbread. Yeah. And not a pizza. That's what she's claiming. I don't think so. Neither do I. 800-848-9222. Marianne is in Indiana. Hello, Marianne. Hello, Frank. I was calling about pizza. Yeah, tell me. Okay, well, the pizza should be round with the red sauce and cheese or any toppings you like. I don't like the white sauce. Uh, no good. So you agree with Rachel that something has to have, if if something's going to be called pizza, it has to have tomato? Yes. Well, that's, I... that's the way, you know, originally was. I mean, no one ever heard of white sauce or anything unless they put it on spaghetti. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the story is. I am a pizza enthusiast, and I'm somebody that believes it comes in all sorts of different uh, different varieties. But you disagree. Well, my family owns an Italian restaurant in Indianapolis, and we have a around-the-world pizza, which is very uh, popular and uh there's no other white sauce or any kind of uh, other di- diverse 
pizza. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Thank you, uh, Marianne. Appreciate that. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. A couple of people said that uh, we're, you know, we got knocked off the radio. I don't know if that's just the radio, but uh, I'm sure we're going to work on, uh, you know, getting back to that in in just a minute. I don't know if we're still broadcasting online. Uh, So if we are, then uh, just listen to us online. Check out WABCradio.com and let me know if, uh, if, we are indeed broadcasting on online uh, because uh, at the moment we're at least not on the radio. But hopefully that's something that is revol- resolved soon. So I'm sorry about that. I'll tell you what, if you can hear me, give me a call. If you can't hear me, then give me a call. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, we are going to do the $1,000 minute coming up and uh, we'll have some other things Coming your way as well. Uh, reminder, 5 a.m., you're going to hear the WABC early news with uh, Deb Valentine. And then at 6, you're going to hear the Bernie and Sid show without Sid. Sid is going to be off for his daughter's his daughter's uh, graduation. And uh, John Katsimatidis, our boss, will be in for him. Uh, so that'll be something worth checking out. Uh, we're going to try and do the thousand dollar minute in just a minute, but uh, if you want to com- if you want to be the seventh caller to the to the thousand dollar minute to try and be the contestant for today, then go ahead and give us a call right now eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 if you can hear us. That's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. All right, we're back on the air. So my my apologies to everybody that uh, that wasn't able to hear us for a few minutes. Uh, Matt, what went on here? What was the story there? Why did we get knocked off for a minute? I have no idea. People are already blaming. People are people are already blaming Curtis. I got three emails just now uh, bl- blaming Curtis for uh, for knocking us off. The disqualificator yeah. has uh, been knocked out by Curtis. All right, let's conduct an investigation. All of a sudden, you start telling uncomfortable truths about pizza, and people get very very upset. Uh, Gordon is in Canada. Hello, Gordon. Hello, uh, Frank. Uh, yeah, yeah. Marianne's like half right. Like white white sauce does not cut it on a pizza, but pizza doesn't have to be round. Okay. All right. Um, and here's my cap. Here's your what? Well, I lost you there, Gordon. All right. Uh, we're gonna do. We're gonna do. Oh, Gordon. There, I got you. What did you say? There's your what? Where's my cap? Baseball cap. Gordon, I, I don't know. You got to hey. talk to Jake the Snake Roberts, our head of promotion. Uh, got to talk to him. Got to talk to him. Email jake.roberts at wabcradio.com. Anybody has a problem, talk to Jake the Snake Roberts. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, I agree with your wife about the pizza. It's got to have sauce and mozzarella. Um, I noticed something. I was a comet when it crossed the sky it's about like two minutes ago. And then I lost your signal. Yeah, uh, I, I, we don't know what happened. We're investigating it, but it should be working again now. It, it is working, but uh, for a good, like, three minutes, it, it was amazing. This comet was, like, huge, and then, boom, you guys went off the air. Oh, it was a comet? Yeah. Yes. So you saw a comet, and then we were off the air? Exactly. Uh, I'm out on east end of Long Island. Actually, my buddy actually texted me, did you see that? Hey, let me ask you this, Joe. Um, Did you try to tune in to any other radio station while we were knocked off? I went to 107.1, and 
I heard you faintly, but um, then I went to like um, uh, ten ten wins, and they were out also. I don't know, maybe it did something. Really? Radio. Well, that's interesting. I, I I'm wondering, and Joe, thanks for that. I appreciate it. I'm wondering if anybody else saw this comet. And I'm wondering if this comet knocked off a bunch of AM radio stations. I didn't know there was any, there was supposed to be any comet today. So this is wild. Wondering if anybody else has seen that. Uh, Joe is in Iceland. Hello, Joe. Hey, how you doing, Francesca? Uh, listen, your wife is 100% right. Uh, anything without sauce is not pizza. It's fr- uh, Francesca. It's a, uh, a, the bread... It looks like a pizza bread, but it's different ingredients. You can put onion, you can put uh, uh, peppers, stuff like that. My family's been making that for years. So a white pie... Focaccia, excuse me, I said it wrong. Right, no, I'm familiar familiar with focaccia. That was basically the predecessor to uh, pizza. But in your view, a white pizza pie is not a pizza. Uh, Well, they call it pizza, but a white pizza pie is just mozzarella. And and uh, ricotta cheese, uh, that's all that's on it. Uh, well, but, but then, uh, so if, a but if a pizza, white pizza. okay, so uh, all right, uh, a hey, real pizza. It, it sounds a like real... Rachel is right about this one. I, I'm outnumbered here. Um, it sounds like Matt Blaze and I are are in the wrong. That apparently, I don't know. People say a pizza has to have tomato sauce. I'm a little blown away by this. I must say. I'll tell you what we'll do. $1,000 minute, we'll give away uh, some money, hopefully, if you're the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. We will ask you 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you're right about them, then we're going to give you some money. We'll do the $1,000 minute if you're the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, I must say, still quite surprised there were not more people agreeing with me on the pizza question. 
and Matt Blaze on the pizza question, and uh, they are saying, um, you know, that uh, apparently there's a consensus for Rachel, although a couple people are emailing me saying that it doesn't have to have tomato. So uh, I uh, we'll see. I guess we're not settling this. I'd hope to get a, a mandate from my interpretation of what pizza is. It appears that that is not to be. It also appears we are going to try to give away some money. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to Madeline in the Bronx. Hello, Madeline. Hi, Frank. How are I'm you? I'm getting a real kick out of this. Oh, thank you. Well, well, good. I hope you. Uh, I hope you win. What, what? Why are you awake so early in the morning? Because they did an incredible amount of renovation in my apartment today, mm. and if I didn't stay up all night to do the cleaning, I would never be able to get out today to do what I have to do. So I decided to just take a break. I turned on the radio, and I heard about this contest and i called wonderful well good i'm rooting for you you sound like a great lady hopefully we could help uh pay for some of those renovations so the way this contest works madeline it's very simple i'm going to ask you 10 questions the timer is going to begin after i ask you the first question and um then if you get what a question right i'm just going to move on to the next one so that we can get through as many of these as possible you answer 10 you win a thousand dollars simple as that ready to go yes okay Name a liquid. Water. In Islam, who is the last prophet? Mohammed. That's right. What first name is shared by my father and son? By your father and son. Carmine. Who is the current leader of North Korea? Oh, 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 Donald Trump, Rocket Man. Um, oh, God, 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 you can't take Rocket Man? We'll take Rocket Man. We'll take it. Name you, name the four presidents on Mount Rushmore. Okay. Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, and Adams. Ah, no, no, you got three uh, or four. Um, the, it, Adams is not on there. It's uh, Theodore Roosevelt on Mount Rushmore. Oh, I thought I was going to win. <laughs> I th- you were doing well, especially after we gave you Rocket Man. I, I thought you were on a roll. Madeline, uh, you may not win the $1,000, but I'm going to put you on hold, and we're going to give your information to Ryan, and uh, we're going to send you a consolation prize of a uh, a T-shirt, okay? Thank you. Thank you, Madeline. Thanks for playing. Thanks for listening. Uh, so, yeah, Mount Rushmore, Washington, Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln. So we're trying to find out what happened a few minutes ago. Right after I was speaking about sanctions on Russia, apparently we went dead. And there's some speculation, at least uh, from Joe and Ron Konkuma. He says he saw a comet, and it was at that precise moment that we were knocked off the air. And it's not shtick. I'm wondering if there's a connection between whatever he saw and us being knocked off the air. Pete on Staten Island, uh, you have any insight for us? 
Yeah, I got a call. My buddies are fishing underneath the Verrazano Bridge, and they saw something. They thought it was like a shooting star or something, but it was huge. So they all were getting panicky. I told them, well, it might have radiation, so put bars of soap under your arms. That won't work, but I just figured I'd, I'd rib them a little bit. So that's, that happened about the same time because I had uh, Alexa on. And you didn't cut out. Alexa didn't cut out at all. Oh, but good. I heard so we were, we were online the whole time. Yeah, you were on, you were on Alexa all, all, all the whole time. There was no interruption. But I don't know with the radio because I listened on Alexa. All right. hey, uh, well, thank you. So uh, a report of a shooting star near the Verrazano Bridge. Pete, you know, they know they're not supposed to be fishing over there, right? Yeah, but they're crazy. They were out of their mind. That's why I don't go with them. That's why I, they asked me to go with them. I said, no way. Fair enough, Pete. Thank you. Curious if anybody else saw this. So from Huntington, it looked like a, excuse me, not Huntington, Ronkonkoma, it looked like a comet. From the Verrazano Bridge, it looked like a shooting star. Um, so far, nothing's been reported on this. I'm curious if you guys have seen something. Tell me what it was. Tell me what it looked like. What did you see? Or if anybody has seen, has uh, photos of this or images or video, um, tweet me at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Or share it in the uh, the Facebook group at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters because uh, this is pretty interesting. Very, very interesting in terms of the... Um, Whatever may have happened here. So give me a call. Let me know if you saw anything. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I did want to mention what happened in Colombia. You know, over the weekend, they had their runoff election in Colombia. And Colombia is a pretty important country, uh, not only for, uh, for many reasons, but for us, meaning the United States, but they had a runoff election between a right-wing populist and a left-wing populist. It was almost a, if we had Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, that's what Columbia just did. And ultimately, the left-winger won, and they elected a leftist as the president of Colombia. This is a former rebel guerrilla, Gustavo Petro, he narrowly won this runoff election over a political outsider millionaire, and this is going to usher in a new era of politics for Colombia. He is the first leftist president ever elected in Colombia. And this fellow, Gustavo Petro, he, the, he's a senator. This was his third attempt at winning the presidency. And basically, this underlined a big change in presidential politics for this country that has long marginalized the left wing because the left wing was always perceived with armed conflict. As I said, this guy, Gustavo Petro, was once a rebel with a militia, essentially. And he was granted amnesty after being jailed for his involvement with this group, the M-19 movement. But what was interesting to me here, Colombia had... A left-wing populist and a right-wing populist. And it seems to me that the global trend towards populism is just that. It's going on all over the world. Now, ultimately, Bernie Sanders didn't get elected, but you saw all the momentum that Bernie Sanders had in the Democratic primary in 2020. And the fact that Trump was elected in 2016 tells me America is moving in a more populist direction 
the fact that the leading right of center party in France didn't even finish in the top two. Tell, and instead, they went in a more populist direction with Marine Le Pen. And I think there's an argument to be made that Emmanuel Macron is a centrist populist, if that's such a thing. And the French just had their legislative elections. And the left-wing bloc, which is controlled by Mélenchon, who's a left-wing populist in France, they are now the leading opposition party in the French legislature. So I don't know what it says about the world that we are seeing populist leaders. Oh, and Brazil. The two leading presidential candidates in Brazil right now, the election hasn't taken place yet, but you have the incumbent president Brazil in Brazil, Bolsonaro, who's a right-wing populist, and the guy that's polling just ahead of him is the former president of Brazil, a left-wing populist. So there is something going on in this world where voters are rejecting the establishment, and instead they are embracing populism on the left. We've seen it place after place after place, on the right and in the center. And I think the answer is very obvious, at least in the United States. Uh, It's that people see how they've gotten screwed by the establishment time and again. We see that just because things work in like free trade in an economics textbook, that it doesn't necessarily work for us as people. We see that just because it may make sense in some uh, neocon textbook somewhere to invade countries like Iraq, that the people in the countries that are invading don't actually benefit from those invasions. And I'm curious how long this trend is likely to continue. If you have any thoughts about this, let me know. 800-848-WABC. The other interesting thing on the international front, and then we'll, we'll move on, is what's happening in Israel. Israel's prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who I actually happen to like a lot, and I was hoping this government was going to work out. I mean, it was almost doomed to fail. If you think about it, Bennett won a handful of seats in the Knesset and was somehow, through deal-making, able to cobble together a, a majority coalition of these parties, of these groups, who have nothing in common other than they all hated Netanyahu. That was the only thing that united them. You have these left-wing parties, you have these Arab parties, and then you have the ultra-right wing with Naftali Bennett. The, they have nothing in common except that they all can't stand Netanyahu. So it's not exactly a shock that this government has dissolved. But um, now it looks like he's not even going to make it as the uh, premiership more than a year. So along with his key coalition ally, the foreign minister, Yair Lapid, um, they agreed to submit a bill to dissolve parliament, which if passed is going to trigger a general election later this year. Now, if that happens, that will be the fifth election that Israel has in the course of four years. Nationwide elections five times in four years. I have to tell you, I have generally thought that a parliamentary system works better than a presidential system. 
And I, I still tend to think that it's more democratic and functions a lot better than what we have here, especially if it's a parliamentary system like Israel has that includes proportional representation. But this is just ridiculous. Israel is quickly becoming an electoral international joke. I mean, you think about what the taxpayers of Israel are having to spend just having elections. And I'm starting maybe to think I was wrong. Maybe a parliamentary system like the one Israel has is not one that works best. Or this could just be a reflection of if you win two seats in the legislature, you really shouldn't be the leader of the country. Maybe that's just a reflection of the reality. But fifth election in four years, I'd say the Israelis are getting awfully good at voting. They certainly are. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on Israel, Brazil, Colombia, uh, France, or this global trend towards populism, which I find pretty interesting. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Also curious if you saw that comet or that shooting star. Uh, Joe from Ronkonkoma has just posted in the Facebook group the smoke trail that was apparently following that comment. So if you want to take a look, just uh, go into the Facebook group. And if you have photos yourself, uh, please post them because this is pretty interesting, the fact that uh, we happen to go off the air right at the same time that something was in the sky, whether it was a comet, whether it was a shooting star, whether it was something else. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you happen to see it. 1-800-848-WABC. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Yeah, Frank, I, I just want to give you a preemptive goodbye You've you've went too far, Frank. You've stirred the aliens to a point where not only are they going to target your show, which they have just done, but I'm, I'm afraid that you're going to be going to another planet very soon, Frank. <laughs> so, I would I would say goodbye to Carmine, say goodbye to Rachel and everybody else, Frank, because you've gone too far. We'll see, Neil. We'll see. Thank you very much. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two. To to Joseph is in Park Chester. Hello, Joseph. Uh, regarding the uh, <clears throat> comet or uh, shooting star that some people purportedly saw in Staten Island and out in Ronkonkoma, I just want to lay the audience's fears because I finally figured out where those streaks in the sky are coming from. All right, it's actually Hunter Biden at the top of the Statue of Liberty smoking crack at four o'clock in the morning. There you go. Now, now we know. Thank you, Joseph. Al's in Fort Lauderdale. Hello, Al. Hello, Frank. Is, does that mean in Israel that Netanyahu might run again? Well, yeah, I would assume he is. I would assume he's the, actually the favorite at this point uh, because um, Netanyahu is still in the Knesset. And I don't know how closely uh-huh. you follow um, Israeli politics, but um, Netanyahu was reelected and his party got the most seats in the Knesset, but they didn't get enough seats to form a majority. So he tried uh, he and the Likud party tried to partner with some of the other yeah, parties yeah. so that he could get a majority, and uh, they yeah. weren't able to get anybody uh, enough people to partner with them for the majority. So right now he's still in the Knesset, and he's the leader of the opposition. He's still uh, the most popular politician in Israel. So I actually think yeah. um, there's a good chance that uh, they might win the most seats again and have a good chance at uh, seeing him restored to being the prime minister again. Well, and uh, Frank, you know, it's the same thing when you talk about parliamentary. It's the same thing in Canada. It's the same thing in the U.K. 
um, they make coalitions so they can stay in power. That's the way they do it. Trudeau would go down the tubes if he had to go by the liberals himself. But because he partners with somebody, uh, he manages to get the majority. No, I, I understand how parliamentary systems yeah, work out. Yeah, uh, yeah, but the difference yeah. in what Bennett did in Israel is usually yeah. the people that are able to partner and form a government government are people like Netanyahu who win the most right. seats or people like Trudeau in Canada or uh, people right. like uh, Matteo, uh, you know, uh, people like um, Mario Draghi in uh, Italy, although it, Draghi is more of um, more of an independent. But in uh, the case of Bennett, he only won two seats. So it was pretty remarkable that he was able to form a governing coalition to begin with. Fred is in Yonkers. Hello, Fred. Hey, Frank, it couldn't have been a comet because they move much too slow. But I tell you what, boy, are my sinks clean. <laughs> Can always count on Fred for a, a little comic relief. All right. I uh, got the word here from my Uncle John. The first pizza most likely had at least tomato sauce. Based on my childhood, I would taste my mom's sauce by pouring it on a piece of Italian bread. So I believe that's how pizza was invested, invented. Therefore, pizza has to have sauce. I, I'll tell you, I'm in the minority on this one. I thought for sure everyone was going to call in and say, "Oh, come on! Of course, pizza doesn't have any kind. Doesn't have to have sauce. It can have sauce, but it doesn't have to." Evidently, I am the one that is forced to eat my words and a sauceless pizza. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll do fifteen seconds of fame uh, coming up in just a few minutes. If you want to email me uh, to stay in touch, you can do so. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll do 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. WABC. email here from uh, James who says that uh, it was probably a meteor, not a comet. They can screw up all kinds of radio communications. And um, uh, a lot of other people are saying that uh, they didn't see anything, but they did hear me cut out for a couple of minutes. So we'll see. And I'm hearing other radio stations were on. Other people are saying that the radio stations were knocked off. Uh, So... Uh, the mystery continues. Uh, I am curious if you have any video or photos 
of this meteor or comet or shooting star or whatever this celestial object was, email them to me or post them in the Facebook group. Again, my email, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. And then uh, if you want to post them in the Facebook group, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Coming up at 5 o'clock, Deb Valentine with the WABC Early News. And then uh, coming up from 6 to 10, you'll get to hear Bernard McGurk and John Katsimatidis. They are going to be bringing you all the latest information. Now, so far, the only scheduled guest is Bo Deedle, but I've co-hosted this show with John before, and John ends up um, basically getting everybody on the show. Uh, he'll think at the last minute, oh, maybe we should have uh, Bill de Blasio on. <laughs> Bill de Blasio. Maybe we should get Rudy Giuliani. Oh, there's Rudy. You just never know when John Katzmatidis is hosting a four-hour show who will be on and when. And uh, you're going to want to be glued to that radio because, uh, first of all, John's an expert in a lot of the issues that we're covering right now. But... He's also somebody that knows everybody and can get them on the phone any given moment. Uh, any given moment, you could hear Governor Patterson or you could hear General David Petraeus. You just just never know who you're going to see. So uh, that's certainly going to be a fun show. And it's going to be fun for you if you choose to dial in and be heard for 15 seconds. Right now, there are two open phone lines, but I have to caution you, they fill up quickly. So go ahead and give us a call. We don't screen the calls for content Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Just make sure you have the radio turned off. One eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Say whatever you like, essentially for fifteen seconds. Tomorrow we have an action-packed show for you. Let me see what we have scheduled for tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow we are going to feature uh, Louis Rosenberg. Louis Rosenberg is an interesting person, if ever there was one. Uh, Louis Rosenberg is of the belief, he's a pioneer, he's a brilliant man, a PhD, and he's a pioneer in the fields of virtual reality, augmented reality, and AI. 30 years ago, he developed the first augmented reality system. And we're going to talk about where we are with augmented reality at the moment. And he says essentially that augmented reality could potentially give us the equivalent of superpowers. So this is a conversation you're not going to want to miss. That's coming up tomorrow. And I'm working on a few other things on that front as well. All right, uh, 15 seconds. Say whatever you like. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-WABC. Two open lines. Now's the time. You want to tell a joke? You want to ask a question? You want to promote something? Now's the time. 800-848-9222. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Joe is in Ron Kunkama. Hey, I sent you some more pictures, Frank, of that meteor comet. But also, I noticed there was a constellation right next to it of Joe Biden pulling off his bicycle again. (laughs) 800-848-9222-Mike on Staten Island. So, listen, in Staten Island, a white pie is at Dino's Woodside. The place to go is Dino and Son. 800-848-9222. Rich on Staten Island. Hey, Frank, ask your buddy Brian. And you know what he's going to tell you? Johnny loves his mashed potatoes. 800-848-9222. Mike in the Poconos. I'm still laughing. A shout-out to Joe to Ron Conkaba. I'll tell you what. 
Uh, I didn't realize yesterday, Frank, I was going to the post office, but a national holiday, Juneteenth. Hey, we had Martin Luther King Day. Enough is enough. Let's go. I mean, really. And don't think about taking Columbus Day away from this Italian-American. Don't think about it. Well, thank you, Mike. I happen to agree with you on Columbus Day. But look, as Andrew Giuliani said in the debate yesterday, I don't think there's anything wrong with celebrating Juneteenth and the fact that slavery ended. I mean, what's wrong with celebrating the end of slavery? 800-848-9222. Neil is in Staten Island. Yes, Frank. Not if you anger the aliens. You don't have to worry about making that appointment for the barber. You don't have to worry about what a pizza is. And to my friend Ellen Metzger from the Facebook, both saying goodbye to you, Frankie. Bye-bye. <laughs> And I won't have to worry about waiting in line at the DMV this afternoon either, which uh, is, I'm sure, going to be an adventure. 800-848-9222. Alfredo is in Newark. This is sanity. You humans are bad. Soon you are going to pay for that. 800-848-9222. Jack is in New Jersey. Frank, over-familiarity breeds content. That's why Curtis lost the election, because people don't know if it's sick or if he's serious. It sometimes sounds foolish. You need to put him in his place. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Jack. Trust me, uh, Curtis is not taking advice from me, that's for sure. I wish he would once in a while. 800-848-WABC. Jeff is in Forest Hills. Yeah, I got something to the store. I put 15 steaks on those orbs and uh, walks out of my store with uh, 15 steaks. I got a little of your chicken at the end of the table over here, and uh, I got Curtis online, too. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Uh, tell, give Curtis our best, 800-848-9222. By the way, Curtis has been doing a great job with that noon show. Every day uh, at, at noon, right before Bill O'Reilly and, uh, and Greg Kelly. All right. Uh, that about slams the lid on this edition of 15 Seconds of Fame. I just posted in the Facebook group all the terrific bumper music uh, that, we have been, uh, that we have been playing. So um, we are going to, you, if you want to know what exactly, who the artists are and who we're playing on the show, just join the Facebook group. Search Morano Radio Fans and haters. And if you got any photos of this comet or this shooting star or this meteor, whatever it was, uh, post them there. I'd love to see them. And I think I suspect a lot of our listeners would as well. Uh, so uh, please do check that out. All right. The WABC Early News with Deb Valentine is next. Uh, John Katsimatidis and Bernie McGurk from 6 until 10. Uh, until tomorrow, Frank Morano, good day.